You're listening to the We Are Libertarians podcast network. Find all of our shows at wearelibertarians.com. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Find more great shows like this at wearelibertarians.com. All right, let's get back to some boring subjects. Understand the risk to our country. Freedom brings people together. You're listening to the We Are Libertarians Network. Learn more at wearelibertarians.com. Welcome, everybody, to the program. My name is Chris Spangle, and today we are going to talk about the most litigated election in presidential history as of today, as of now. Um, we're going to cover the lawsuits that are taking place around the election and we are going to explain why these lawsuits are taking place. We're going to talk about the the census and, and what's going on there. Um, there are lawsuits in, in every single swing state, and uh, we'll explain why. Do that right after this. Warning. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it... <clears throat> a real POS. You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. This show is for adults, produced by semi-adults. So the language is sometimes strong and offensive. Uh, I don't know what I said. Uh... Welcome to We Are Libertarians, where our goal is to help you sound smarter while talking to your friends. We examine current events from a libertarian perspective while treating modern politics with all of the irreverence it deserves. There has been lie after lie. We toss out the screaming heads, put people before political parties, and give context to the news to make you think. Now, here's our host, a 15-year veteran of politics and media, Chris Spangle. Well, hello, everybody. It's great to be with you today. I know 2020 is terrible, but I just find all of this so interesting. And it is uh, such an honor to come and talk with you every single day. And I want to thank all of our patrons for making this possible. You know, we have quite... And we've been preparing for 2024 two years, everything for the logo upgrade to just adding on a bunch of different things, trying to nail it. We've done a great job, in my opinion, this year, if I do say so myself. You know, just the balance. you got Ryan voting for Biden. you got Rimzo voting for Trump. You've got, you know, Harry. Harry, are you even voting? I don't think Harry's even voting. I don't vote. Yep. I You've got... Don't. Brian Nichols voting for Jorgensen. Now, most of us are voting for Jorgensen. It's just the balance is great. The conversation has been great. And it's all because of our patrons. And I want to thank them first up up front because there's been several shows lately where I've, I've 
get so into it and they get to the back. And I want to thank especially our $100 a month patrons. Uh, first and foremost, Katie, uh, Katie, Casey Felposh, Brad Tracy, Anthony Meyer, Matthew Durbin, Jeff Bennett, Ryan Hold, Christy Avery, Jason Doolittle, and Ed Brehob. Uh, it is incredibly important to support the media that you – if you get something out of the show, we go off of the no agenda value for value model. Uh, we do give you some merchandise if you hit certain uh, tiers in the Patreon. But really, if you get value out of this, then we ask you to give value back. So if you find that this is an, an essential part of your week, then you're the person that we want to uh, join the Patreon, and we'll give you some cool stuff. But we really appreciate – uh, your support. Uh, Harry, how are you today? I'm going good. Going good. Um, this week has been, you know, a little rough on me. Um, I figured, finished a lot of different projects and then someone dropped another project in my lap. And the only one of these projects I really wanted to do this week was a Linux project and helping um, Gunther potty train this week. Which, uh, How's that going? I have used my carpet cleaner so much. <laughs> Gunther is a toddler, uh, Harry's child. Yeah, and Uh, she she just, I feel it's a big protest now at this point that she doesn't want to do what she, she she does what she wants. And um, uh, we're just, yeah, we're just along for the ride. And got to tell her that's not true. (laughs) Yeah, right. Uh, uh, Reinhold, how are you? I'm doing well. Uh, It's been a fun, busy, busy, busy week, but still fun and getting things done. And I'm finding... I'm refinding my passion um, by rewatching Newsroom and some other Alan Sorkin uh, TV shows. Cause, well, uh, if you didn't think Reinhold could get any, if you didn't think he could get preachier. <laughs> yeah, if you didn't think that, man, uh, I can get I can get way preachier on that on the on what we should be and what we could aspire to be and what we are. You know, hey, so there. I want to uh, take a moment before we we move on too because you initiated a fundraiser so. Trisha Stewart Mann, our Ginger Queen here at We Are Libertarians, one of our co-hosts. She hosts the the Gingerarchy podcast, allegedly, and uh, she is just such a great friend to all of us. And anybody that knows Trisha, if you've heard her on the show, she is just a delightful human being, great person, uh, loves liberty like you wouldn't believe, just loves her friends, her family, and, uh, you know, we are putting together a fundraiser for her. We're up to uh, $1,600 so far, and we thank uh, the the 27 people that have donated so far. But this will be in the show notes, um, and you can find it on her social. Trisha has had a tough year, and through no fault of her own, and lost multiple jobs due to the lockdowns, and has you know been working a an hourly job. Uh, in a bar, and that has become problematic because she is unexpectedly pregnant, <laughs> and she didn't think she could get pregnant. She uh, and you know it's it's tough when she's 29 now, and you know so she's still fertile. So I don't know why she thought that, but she's in a position where she can't work, and not working would be financially devastating to their family. And uh, we wanted to just support her and show her how much. You know, Dennis, I think watching what Trisha has had to go through this year through no fault of her own has just really been tough for all of us in We Are Libertarians because we love her so much and she's such a great person. And right. we're we're just trying to give back. So if you can give, 
you know, five, ten, a hundred dollars, fifty bucks, two hundred, whatever you can give. We just really appreciate it because she's at a point where she needs bed rest. She can't go to work. She can't be on her feet all night, you know, and, and it's a, an issue of just taking care of her and her unborn child. And, and we really, you know, this audience has done great things and helped raise money for, you know, for you know, we raised $5,000 for uh, a listener, a patron who was getting out of an abusive relationship, for instance. And I wanted to say they're, they're doing fantastic. I mean, her life is in such an amazing position because of this audience. And so we wanted to do the same for Trisha. So we, we'd ask that you contribute to that GoFundMe because it's been tough, Reinhold. It has, and, and, and it's, it's tough as friends to watch, the, watch what's happening. That She has to make the choice between working to pay her bills and her health and whether or not she can possibly even survive the next few months, right? So that's... Uh, really scary to see for people you care about and, and the empathy you have for people. And um, it's, it's, it's what we do as libertarians. We don't want to you know, push off the responsibility to helping our fellow people or our neighbors to the government or to some other bunch of bunch of people. And in some sort of forced way, we should, we should act on, on that belief. And, and we see somebody who needs help and do what we can to help them. And then some people can help, some people can't help. And there's no, um, you know, there's not going to be anything that going on there, judgment or anything like that. If, if you can't, but man, if you can, and she, she really is somebody who's uh, worthy of it and deserves it. Yep. Great memes too. <laughs> so with that, let's move on to our topic for today. Uh, we have a ton of information for you. It is uh, – so I want to start with sort of where – why I've avoided this topic for the entire – for 20 years. Uh, so the, the topic today is going to be the litigation around this presidential election and dealing mostly with voter suppression. And as a baby Republican – you know, I have a picture that I got signed by Oliver North at CPAC in 2003 hanging on my wall, for instance, from when I was a Republican. Like, I was that Republican. I was college Republicans chair. And, uh, you know, when you are a Republican, and I, I have no doubt that this is true on the left. I just don't have that experience with it. But, I'm, I, you know, you see the moral superiority displayed by Democrats, and, you know, they probably have it too. But – you believe that your side is the more moral side and that the other side are criminals and thieving liars. And, and then you grow up and realize they're all thieving, lying criminals. But uh, you, you, you hear the stories of voter suppression and you just kind of dismiss it and go, ah, eh, that's not the case. And then you kind of never look into it and you never really notice what's going on. And it's always kind of foggy. There's a lot of murkiness around it. The problem with 2020 and the information that we're about to give you is that it's so nakedly out in the open that it's hard to dismiss in any way, shape, or form. I mean, we have at least an hour or two of material here based on the show notes, uh, first and foremost by Sam Schultz, our great researcher, along with some of our own research through the last week. But, you know, the, the notes that we put together last weekend on this topic – we could have expanded into other states because new lawsuits are popping up by the Trump campaign trying to limit people's abilities to vote. And you've seen in the news, you know, the 11-hour lines in Georgia, for instance. You know, and, and the long and short of it is that in a place like Georgia, which every single year has voting problems, 
there's a reason, you know. And if you're in the northern part of Georgia, the white part of Georgia, there's one elector, there's one voting machine for every fifty people. But in 2018, there was one voting machine for for five thousand people. For you know, so in black areas and urban areas, it's a limited of a number of machines, so it expands the lines. And you know, I'm not. I'm not the I'm not for I know you two are you're crazy but uh you know online voting and all that kind of stuff uh and people say oh what a tragedy it is that people have to wait in line I'm not of that that mindset like I think you know it's not hard to go and we we are so spoiled in this country you know my, my um my girlfriend spent a year in Chile and about 6 months ago I said hey are you registered to vote are you going to vote She's like, absolutely not. And I go, why not? She goes, well, doesn't that cause you problems? Like, don't you get, like, harassed for that? I go, what are you talking about? <laughs> she goes, well, in Chile, if you're registered to vote and they see you vote and they know how you vote there, goon squads show up and beat you up or intimidate you from voting in the next election. Or, like, there's real consequences to voting in Chile or just being registered. She's like, so it wasn't, she's like, doesn't that happen here? I'm like, no, <laughs> no, not here. You know, so in other countries, it's it's life or death uh, if you vote. So an hour-long line, I'm like, you got a cell phone. You can stand there. It's not that hard, right? Just to make sure that it's all good, it's all right. 11 hours, what's the, what's the, the root cause of that? You know, and that's a lot of what we're going to talk about today. And the reality in all of this information is that it's Republicans, and it's kind of a hard pill to swallow coming from a Republican background, coming from a mindset that your team is better than the other team and the Democrats steal votes. And, you know, the mayor of Gary, Indiana, saying in 2008 that, it, you know, Obama can win Indiana. He just needs to know how many votes in his, he, he needs to pull out of his desk drawer, actual quote, you know, daily contributing to the uh, theft of the election for Kennedy. Like, you've always heard those stories, and dead people vote for Democrats in, in droves. Like, those are the stories that we always kind of told ourselves. You know, but when you look through this information that we're about to present to you, I got to tell you, it's it's pretty ugly. Um, and we'll tell you more. But, you know, so many things, especially when it comes to voting. So we've been having this discussion in our Facebook group. Listen, I'm not going to pretend that voting is – Bob Murphy made the point. He's like, the more people voting, have you seen the quality of your representatives increase? Like, you know, the, the, there's diminishing returns. The The Vox Explained episode on Netflix kind of showed the diminishing returns. People fight for the right to vote, and then you get it, and then people kind of shrug and stop voting, and more people don't vote than vote anymore, you know, and – our, our Republican and Democratic friends tend to look at this as the most important election in our lifetime, and you need to vote to survive, and if you don't, you're in really in real trouble. Your life isn't going to change based on who wins Biden or Trump. Like, it's just not. Like, what you talk about and our obsession with Trump and the constant conversation around him because that's how he likes it, like, That'll go away if he loses. Like, that'll be nice to have a boring president. But, like, even if he wins, your day-to-day -day life probably isn't going to to change unless you are, like, 
you know, if you're Antifa or or the in the MAGA crowd going out and trying to start trouble, maybe. But um, the the system will deteriorate further. There's no doubt about that, and we'll talk about that in future episodes. How that how he's deteriorating the system. We also know that Biden will deteriorate the system further too. Long term, that stuff has real impact on our lives, right? But the day after the election, unless you were crying, it's not going to affect you too much. So I don't view voting. I view election season as lead generation. <laughs> you're probably listening to this show because there's a presidential election, and if you're new. Uh, and I don't view it as a vehicle for change. I view it as lead generation to get you thinking differently and in a different way. Um, but, Harry, you don't vote, and maybe we'll start with why. You know, but, Reinhold... It, do we want people voting? Like, do we want it to be as easy as possible to vote? Should people even be voting? What do you guys think? So I think, and this and this is kind of how I see it, I think every person who is eligible to vote should vote. But I think that every person who is eligible to vote should be well-informed and be able to make the proper decisions on who to vote for. And I also believe that every person who's eligible to vote, who goes to vote, should be more interested in their local races mm-hmm. because that's where the power should be centralized, not central, decentralized, as, as it were, right? I mean, the you should know who your state senators are and state congressmen are, and a lot of people don't. You should know who you're, who's on your boards uh, and your county, your county boards, because they're the ones... That's where you know any power that is given to the government should be placed, not the the figurehead at the centralized part of the government. That that position should be so devoid of power that it becomes just a, a national fun day to go in and vote who we want to be that executive at the time. And it's important that we choose that person properly and based off the right information, but it shouldn't be such an emotional just fight i'm Uh, genuinely worried that uh, i'm genuinely worried that people are going to kill themselves over the outcome of this election or feel the need to take up arms on either side (laughs) right yeah like it's really please don't harm yourself because one candidate or another won. like it's going to be okay you know it's just like that that's my biggest fear is that people internalize this stuff so much like if you criticize trump people read it as why are you criticizing me you know, mm-hmm. if you criticize if America. Biden wins, people are they've bought into the propaganda from you know, the Rudy Giuliani's and the Fox News of the world that America is literally over, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and it's just not. Right. And please just it's going to be OK. Yeah, if Trump doesn't win, America's over. The cities are going to continue to burn. <laughs> right. Um, so, Harry, why don't you vote? All right, so I got the same sentiment as Reinhold, um, but keep it going down the line. You're right. In a time of peace, the president really should just be some figurehead that no one really cares about, and the power should be decentralized down to local local government office and decentralized even more to the people who actually live in that community. So, yeah, yeah, decentralized all the way down to the, you know, the the biggest minority group, the individual. The issue with me with voting is... I am one of those people that just, I don't, 
to me, I just never hardly get to see like voting does work. You know, if it's like I vote harder, I vote harder. I used to vote hard really all these times. I sucked it up and voted and kept doing these things, but it's, you don't really experience change and stuff like that. And you can try to encourage all these people to get shouted down and you vote, but nothing really happens. Yeah. I think the biggest thing that I've ever done in that voting booth that has ever done anything, this is the only thing that I've ever done in that, one of those little boxes is I check for alternative party groups that be for the simple fact that I go in there to do that. So they get, you know, for outreach. So people understand different things. So I'm not burning the bridge that let me learn more about libertarianism and other alternative methods. That bridge of having libertarian party, having ballot access and helping continue them have ballot access allows me to know that there could be some young Republican or young Democrat that keeps seeing this L or, you know, G on the ballot to go like, hmm. What the heck is this all about? Let me, you know, I'm trying to be an informed person. Let me also find out what these other groups. The biggest yeah. day I, the most, the busiest day I ever had as executive director of the Libertarian Party of Indiana was the day after McCain lost in 2008. Because people had gone in, they had seen the Libertarian on the ballot, and they wanted to know how did they get involved? How, what was it? How did it work? The month after the election is a huge time for people to file, like they've seen the can't, the, the party. What is that? They look into it, and it really – you're exactly right. And that's that's why I choose to vote. I don't expect outcome. I certainly understand the anarchist view that voting is participating in the system of putting the gun to other people's heads. Mm -hmm. So there are a lot of libertarians that, that don't want you to vote because you're participating in a system that is corrupt and destructive towards human lives. And I'm totally sympathetic to that view. I look at it as self-protection. If the gun is going to be wrangled over, I want to participate in the process and be in the discussion. And I want to register my protest vote. I want you to see my want, my plus one on that L line. you know. And by the, the, the mere existence, we're going to talk to Don Rainwater at some, some time, but by the mere existence on the ballot, you know, Donald Rainwater here in Indiana is polling at 24% in a three-way race. That's not a far jump up to 33 because the Republican governor messed up so bad and has picked, pissed off so many people and has been so arrogant and comfortable that he's going to get walloped, you know, that his base is eroding. And, you know, it's really interesting here in Indiana because Trump is eroding the elite base and they're abandoning him. People like former Lieutenant Governor John Mutz, very powerful Republican, defecting to Biden, uh, and then there's you know the the grassroots defecting from Eric Holcomb over the mask mandates. Mm -hmm. So the ability, the the presence of Andy Horning and then Rupert Bonham and then Rex Bell in that governor's race in those debates allowed for Don Rainwater to come along and be the uh, give the ability for people to have that protest vote. Mm -hmm. And I want to participate in that system for that reason. And so. I, I certainly am sympathetic that you shouldn't vote. And listen, if we're gonna if we're gonna vote, I agree with with Reinhold. It's like gay marriage. If marriage is legal and it exists, then it should be open and free to all. And the government should not discriminate against couples that want to be married just because of their same sex status. If we're going to vote, everybody should have the ability to vote. We should have full suffrage, and you shouldn't play games with the law. And so much of what trump does is operates in that gray area 
so much of what we're going to talk about today is operating in that gray area and trying to dis- to use the law to disenfranchise people from voting or to cast their ballots out. I want to make one correction I said in the last episode, and this is a critical error that I want to correct. I said around 25% of mail-in ballots are tossed out. It's actually four to five. You know, So in-person voting, about 1% gets tossed out. Four to five of the mail-in get tossed out. So I apologize for having that fact. I heard it on a podcast somewhere, internalized that as a fact, and then um, – when I was doing some further reading for this show, I, f- I found that I was totally wrong in, in a big way. So I do want to say uh, that I wanted to, to be corrected on that. So, um, you know, videos of this, uh, the, the mindset here from both sides, but especially, you know, it's on tape from the Republicans, um, is we don't want people voting because they're evil. So there's this group called the Council for National Policy, which meets every year with with big, you know, conservative movers and shakers. They've got video of Charlie Kirk speaking, Leonard Leo, who uh, founded the Federalist Society. You've got Jenny Thomas, wife of Clarence Thomas, you know, speaking and involved in this. And uh, Bill Walton, who is the executive committee president of the group, um. It was a former her, Celtic, right? Uh, Bill Walton? No, no. <laughs> this is the most important election in our lifetime, and I'm doing drugs. So I want you to hear like what Bill. I want you to hear Bill Walton and his his uh, view of this election. One of the things I've really come to with this: this is a spiritual battle we are in. This is good versus evil. And we saw that on display, you know, the last seven days or whatever it was they were, they were spewing. Um, and we have to do everything we can to win. And he went on to, so he says we have to do everything to win. Uh, Tom Fitton, president of Judicial Watch, told attendees the same day that the left is wargaming a plan to delay the election tally till January 20th and enable Nancy Pelosi to become the acting president. This kind of, like, crazy talk among political people, Fitton said, uh, this is not an insignificant concern. Uh, Fitton called on the audience to find a way, this is from the Washington Post, link in our show notes, Fitton called on the audience to find a way to prevent mail-in ballots from being sent to voters. We need to stop those ballots from going out, and I want the lawyers here to help us, to tell us what to do. His organization is a tax-exempt charity, by the way. But this is a crisis that we are not prepared for. I mean, our side is not prepared for it. The left has wargamed this out and could cause civil war. Brent Bozell, a CMP executive committee member and founder of the Media Research Center, which is sort of like the media matters for the right, uh, another tax exempt charity, um, told attendees that the left plans to steal this election. And what if they get away with it? What happens? Democracy is finished and they usher in totalitarianism. And this is, you know, kind of the as you heard in our last episode. If you hadn't didn't hear the second part of last week, um, the mail-in voter stuff is just a myth. Like there is no evidence whatsoever that any of this is a uh, that the left can or will steal an election in this way, and the right is increasingly stepping up their constant they're dramatic they're being drama so like this tweet 
from Sorbomari. So you had the Hunter Biden stuff come out this week, and the New York Post uh, reported some some story from Rudy Giuliani, who may just be a useful idiot or gullible. We can't tell, or maybe all that's true. Who knows? But that's not the point. So the the Twitter Twitter blocks the ability to send out this story, and so. Sora Bomari, who works for the New York Post, who is a big Trump fan, who is the kind of the the spiritual leader. He works for this magazine called First Things and is the spiritual leader of the new nationalist movement, the non-white supremacist national movement. He's more of a policy guy. Um, you know, so nationalist usually gets associated with a, uh, you know, the uh, like the Richard Spencer type. Sora is not that guy. Um but he writes all these articles about how bad libertarians are and how wrong they are and how we need nationalism. And he has just been all over this. And he writes, We beat Twitter's cyber totalitarianism. The link works. Thanks to all our friends who stood with Alexander Hamilton's newspaper. The problem with calling this totalitarianism is that I found this article on a million other websites, clicked the link to read the New York Post's article, and then read about 14 different sites <laughs> on, on what was going on. So uh, let me see if I can remove this and, and just show you, like, excuse me. So I'm trying to operate the, the video machine here. We're all scared of what article he's post next or what yeah. screen he actually shows. Right. So, you know, when I go through my, I, I, you can't see the links, but. There's this site called memorandum.com, and this is a great site. So, like, you go to this website, and you can find, like, a million different discussions around these articles, okay? So, you know, when you look at this, you can go and look at 14 different articles around, you know, this one major news story. If you live in a totalitarian society, this website doesn't exist, and the 14 differing opinions based on that one piece of information don't exist. If you call everything totalitarianism, then it loses its force. It loses its meaning. It's why we are – I try exceedingly hard to be fair to people I don't agree with. You know, I try hard not to call, you know, him Big Orange Cheeto, for instance – because I just don't think that's nice, and I don't think that that makes your point effectively. You can disagree. It's not relevant what he looks like. It's not relevant what AOC looks like. Like, you know, at the end of the day, we try not to be hyperbolic. Uh, like calling, taking everything to an eleven, is really strange. Like, should Twitter be a? Should Twitter have ever gotten into? censoring information and and editorializing political speech no and i took a tremendous amount of crap from libertarians screaming my property rights by saying alex jones has a right to be on these platforms and should be back in 2018 Mm -hmm. and all the conservatives just didn't stand with alex jones because they didn't want to seem like they're in the same coalition with him and now i don't have a lot of sympathy them because they were weak bitches two years ago when it really mattered you yes. know, and so I don't really feel bad for Sara Bamari in the New York Post because they didn't do shit for Alex Jones when the when the chips were on the table. Twitter and Facebook made the decision to censor political information. They never should have done it. They've done it. And now Jack Dorsey's spending his day thinking about am I going to piss off Senator Hawley or am I going to piss off Senator Wyden? 
instead of thinking, how do I enrich the lives of 7 billion people? He's thinking about the government and two people. That's why the government sucks. And so, you know, his decision is based on not being regulated, even though they kind of want to be regulated because they can then use the force of government to control other competitors from entering the space. But now that they've done it, and now that they're doing it, the, the train is out of the station and it's their right. And so you can then go to Parlor, join our friend Remzo over at Parlor, you know, or here at We Are Libertarians, we're building our website, our podcast feed, our email newsletter, because we understand it's kind of bullshit that these platforms are giving into this stuff. So we're going to use them to draw people over to the things that we own and get out of these, these bad neighborhoods, you know, which is why we ask for Patreon support so we can do that. You know, that's the alternative. If we lived in a totalitarian society, none of that would be possible. So quit using words like totalitarianism when you have the ability to read the information in other places. You have no right to force, like, getting rid of Section 230 and using government force to censor the lesser censor with the greater censor mm-hmm. is ludicrous and not libertarian. And I just keep seeing libertarians falling for it, and I'm just like, what? Yeah. Because Section 230 could use some reform to, like, clean up that language to fit that, but it's scared to open that that can of worms right now, you know, because someone will just use the force of government. Right. Yeah. The the thing is, you're absolutely right. What they did with Alex Jones in 2018, and they were also people, conservative groups also now complaining about, like, how they can't use Patreon and get this money off. Like, dude, they did that to sex workers before that, got them off the other sites. You, you should have protected them. You didn't. And look. Look, you can't be screaming property private rights. When you when moving to other platforms, be careful. Um, just like Parler and stuff like that, is because like one who owns it, who owns that road that you're on. Um, also, you know, make sure don't fall for the the falsehood of when you move to things of these walled off gardens because facebook twitter used to be these massive walled gardens they were built on open source federated code that was able to send out you could used to be be able to do stuff on facebook but never get on facebook and it was beautiful and an amazing time but then facebook put up that walled garden the whole facebook messenger you must use our messenger and they walled themselves off the same way with twitter did you know so it's more of a, if we're going to move off let's use things that you know are federated code that interact with systems we own those and when we can own those roads, you know, so that's why the website and emails is amazing. I've been shouting that at, at dear leader for years and not, and yeah. watching him go to it. It just makes just, ah, uh, just warms my heart. Yeah. We have so much controversy over our Facebook page, but it is literally the last thing. Like we have this great asset in hundred thousand Facebook likes. It yep. doesn't really do anything in terms of driving the stuff that we do care about, which is podcast downloads and Patreon mm-hmm. subscriptions and, you know, driving people to our website, like it, we we use it just as legacy support anymore to to live stream like on on here and hope hope that some people do notice us. But like, you know, uh, Tommy points out the very obvious, and I want to apologize to you, Harry. Two white guys position themselves over the black man. Go figure, Ryan Squirrely face. <laughs> so I just want to say I'm I'm sorry. I will wash your feet next time. I'm going to place you in a position of honor here. I'm below you, Harry, and I just want to thank Tommy for pointing that out. Can I, go ahead, Rant. Right I, I, I want to go back because I kind of disagree a few th- with a few things that were said. So well, then you're wrong. When, when we talked about it being uh, like Alex Jones had a right to be on the program, on the uh, 
Facebook and the Twitter. No, he doesn't. He doesn't have a right to anything. That's private. And, and you're going to yell at me about private property rights, but it's seriously their their way of doing business. Now, libertarianism would point to say if they keep doing that, and, and I'm not saying they should have kept him off of the or off of the platform. It's just that they had the right to. To, to make that right. what they wanted it yes. to be. You as a consumer, as a people, you as an should, informed we, consumer and a user of the platform should make your voice known and say free speech is important to me and you shouldn't do this and you should put pressure on them. It, and right. saying that – But does, you should also be willing to leave and go do something. Right. There's always mm-hmm. going to be competition and that's the, the beauty of this. That's why we embrace libertarianism because there's always competition for the best to come out. And if enough people get upset about Facebook doing what it's doing and Twitter doing what it's doing – and trust me, the young people aren't going to Facebook. Facebook is going to die out. Yeah. <laughs> you know, they're not going, they're, they're hardly even going on Twitter. They're doing Instagram or other things now because they want to be somewhere else doing their own thing. That's how this stuff cycles through. That's how you, you get the, like, there was so much outcry about the New York Post article being blocked on Twitter that Twitter ended up going, okay, we're going to allow it to go. Yeah, because they're stupid. Well, if you don't want people reading it, then you don't censor it. Like it, right. they, they made their they right. made their own bet. I don't want to I don't want to spend more time on this because this is not germane and I'm on a tangent. But in both of these instances, when you've got the guy on the right saying they must be stopped in in any way possible. You know, liberals are slamming these social media companies saying you shouldn't allow this information you've got you've got NBC is just be so Maggie Haberman shared the article and the left was just trying to devour her calling her MAGA Haberman or or you know just like MAGA Maggie the she's the political reporter for the times and you're just like there isn't anybody who's carried more water for your side and you're gonna beat her up over one retweet like it's so funny like NBC has this town hall with Trump and like why are you having this town hall with him I'm like because he's the president. I think he's a buffoon, and I think he's wrong, and I think he shouldn't be reelected. But, like, he's still the president. This is still information that you should want to read. But when you think the other side is evil, there's almost nothing that will stop you from trying to prevent that side from winning. And so you will betray your principles on free speech to keep information out there that you don't want. It doesn't matter. The information's out there. I can go to the Post website. What are you going to do? Shut down every website that shares that piece of information? Like, it, it, you know, and if you're on the right, are you really going to undermine the credibility and all these di- through the legal, like what Trump is doing in terms of diminishing the credibility of the vote has very real and terrifying unintended consequences for the future of this country. But when you think the person that you're opposing is the greatest evil of all time and you've worked yourself into such a lather that you've lost touch with Earth, then you will do anything to stop them. So, um, you know, it goes – so this is a long-standing – so, for instance, the census. Uh, Let's let's talk about the census. I – Appreciate the census because I enjoy going through Ancestry.com and seeing the signature of people like my great-great-grandparents. I never would have known my great-great-grandparents' name, to be honest with you, if it weren't for the census. So I, I'm okay with it. And and of all the things that the government does, it's like I'm outraged at kids in cages, bombing children in Yemen, assassinating American citizens without a warrant, domestic spying, and then like 
2,000th on the list is asking how many people live in my household. So, like, when it comes to outrages, you just I, – I, I can't be outraged about everything all the time. It's just not how I, I want to live my life. Um, <laughs> I save it for the more important things. So I – you know, I forgot to fill out the census. <gasps> I didn't fill it out. I have Too robbed – I have robbed <laughs> – my future generations will never know that their great-great-grandfather lived alone in an apartment with two cats. They suspected it because he was a libertarian podcaster, but they didn't know that he was just a, a lonely simp living on his own. And so I've robbed them because it's October 17th, and I log onto the census website, and I can't, I can't actually take the census anymore. And I'm like, it's not the end of 2020. What the, what the hell's going on? And, uh, you know, and Reinhold has said, he's like, eh, I don't like the census. They should just ask one question. Yeah, I, and I agree. I think so. The, the mandate in the Constitution was that they ask who lives, how you, they know how many people live in each house and why. That's all they need to know. All the other information they're using to sell you stuff. It's just it's like marketing. Right. Yeah. That when they try to get all your information so they can target ads to you, that's mm -hmm. really all that is, is they're going to target the laws to to try to get the most people so they can get the votes, so they can keep the power. I don't want to give them that information, but I do want to give them how many people live in my house because that's important to the representation that comes out of it. The problem is this year is that unlike every other census I filled out when I have filled out a few, I'm a little old. Uh, this is the first year I could not just fill out that question and be done. Hmm. You go to the website to fill it out. They don't give you the form in the mail anymore that you can just mail back in. It was all on the website. You go there, you fill out that first question, and then you can't stop. You can't right. push, finish, and be done. It's become a so data collection service. Yeah. You, so you give it false info, and you keep going. So I make over $500,000 a year podcasting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was kind of weirded about doing the census. I was weirded about doing the census this year um, because normal people problem. Um, I had two houses, so I don't know which house I should fill the census in. Um, so I just did one. Hope that, hope that was correct. Yeah, it's really become a data collection service. Let me show you the, the website. You know, when you look at the Census Bureau website, you know, it's it's explore data, browse topic, age and sex, business and economy, education, Hispanic origin, population, housing, income, poverty, you know, library. Like, all right. Uh, do you need to does the government need to know that information? Is that important? In my opinion, no. Is it helpful that it exists? Treat, yes. But if we're supposed to treat every individual the same in via the government like all our government laws should treat everybody individually the same and all of our uh, institutions should be doing that all our, all our, all the stuff related to the government should be treating everybody as an individual then why does any of that need to be known so do i have it right do, do i have it right that they do count or have they have never so this guy his, his estranged daughter they she apparently hated his guts but when she when this gop strategist died in 2019 his name was Thomas Hoffeller, and he was the he was like the guy in terms of gerrymandering, mm -hmm. and he was the wizard behind the curtain in terms of gerrymandering. And he died, uh, and he's the one who was the driving force on putting on the census a question: "Are you an illegal citizen or not?" Which mm -hmm. I'm surprised didn't exist or what. So, uh, so essentially, what happens is your census workers go out in the neighborhoods. They knock on the door. They, you know, I got like ten pieces of mail to remind me. I got 
people knocking on my door in my neighborhood. My neighbors upstairs were like, census people are in the neighborhood. Don't enter your door. Um, you know, and so I know of three households in this neighborhood alone of young people that just didn't answer it. But, you know, you answer the door in a, a Hispanic area and there's no question on it. Are you a citizen? Are you going to vote? And what this guy and what they wanted to put in was that question. Are you a citizen? And what that would do is essentially um, decrease the amount of tallies in Democratic districts. So then the Republicans could go in and say, well, you know, and this was a whole stated intent in these documents because some of it was was public. But then she sent it to The Times and they published it last year after he died. Mr. Hallfeller's exhaustive analysis of Texas state legislative districts concluded that such maps would be advantageous to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites and would dilute the political power of the state's Hispanics. The reason, he wrote, was that the maps would exclude traditionally Democratic Hispanics and their children from the population count. That would force Democratic districts to expand to meet the Constitution's one-person, one-vote requirement. In turn, that would translate into fewer districts in traditionally Democratic areas— and a new opportunity for Republican map makers to create even stronger gerrymanders. Um, so that was a big part of the problem. And then there was uh, so let me ask you guys. I'm not gonna pretend that like <laughs> I'm mad about it. Like if you're not voting, why should we count you? Am I wrong? Like, I, I, I haven't thought it through deeply or read arguments one way or the other, but, like, my, my first take on it is why should we count a person who is not actually voting? Why are you not voting? Is, are you not because they're not legal citizens. Because, they're illegal no, no, immigrants. No, but that's just it. It, it. Is it because they're not legal citizens or is it because they just don't want to vote? Right, because you're not right. – so quite- They're asking if they're illegal citizens. I'll say here's the thing about that, and I, and I want to I get into this because oh, it, no. this has kind of gotten Uh-oh. diluted Here in the go. whole conversation. I'm going to go pee. Let's, the let's representation, it's supposed to be for the people who live in the area that's being represented, not the people who are citizens in the area that are being represented, but the people. Now, those people cannot vote because they're not citizens. But they still need representation. Their their lives are still being affected by the laws put in place in that area. So therefore, they should have they should be counted as who's going to be there. And that was the whole point with the problem with the two thirds compromise in the Constitution because they wanted to count the people who couldn't. I mean, they're counting women back in the beginning of the country, but women couldn't vote. They were counting black people. Black people couldn't vote, right? But they were still counting them because they're being there was representation. They, they needed to be represented in the government um, so that people could say, hey, we got to think about these people too. All right. So go ahead, Harry. A uh, couple of things, right? Um, not every white person also couldn't vote when the Constitution was up. That was just for landowners. That was landowners. I think it was, think it was yep, like 30, 30% right. of those in the country could vote or something. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Right. Yeah. They counted everybody. Thank you for the great Andrew Jackson. Make sure everyone could vote this country. I'm sure he did nothing else bad. Uh, so <laughs> Don't look it up because I'm, we're sure nothing bad happened there. Right? Nothing bad ever. Don't ever look at that. And he did something with the Central Bank. But that, other than that, stop looking. Uh, um, to me, um, I'm with that. Uh, it also goes to that the idea of what makes a citizen. I think the idea that people who are, quote, unquote, like the citizenship thing, it's – 
you could be a citizen of the town, maybe not be able to vote into the federal elections. I see that. But if you live in that town, you've been in that town for 20 years, you have more right than anyone else to vote in the election to figure out what the town's going on, depending on which imaginary line that you're born on. You know, maybe you're not because you don't have the federal club membership, maybe. You know, you have to pay for the federal club membership, but there's no... Well, the, the idea behind behind citizenship, I'll get back to you real quick, but the idea behind citizenship was to just have a way to prove that people who are coming in here who weren't born here had some investment in the country. They weren't just coming in, voting, being a citizen, and then leaving every six months or something like that, like migrant people. Yeah. It was supposed to be people who are invested in the future of this country, but it's gotten out of hand on trying to make that argument stick now it's like there are people who have green cards for 30 years they can't mm-hmm. get citizenship or people who are trying to get green cards for 20 years and they can't get into the country and it's just gone crazy off the deep end yeah but so then the pro- there was that thought process and the process is, is is still incredibly hard and difficult uh we've got the most of the entire it team for uh, the company that i work for trying to get one of our team members like his citizenship like we're, this is what we're doing this is our side project you know, mm. and it's just like this. Why is this so difficult? Why does it cost ten thousand dollars minimum? I mean, to do. I mean, it's it is crazy. You win the lottery too. Yeah. So yeah. so by yeah. your by your logic, Reinhold. You know, a lot of discussion lately on adding court packing. We'll get to some other time because that's like the twenty eighteen midterms with the caravans. Court packing is not going to happen. But uh, you know, by your logic. Should Puerto Rico and Washington, D.C. be admitted as another state? And my problem with that is that it, the whole system set up on balance. Anytime a state was brought in through the 1800s, you'd have one state on one side and they'd bring in another or they'd create states. So there was always a continual system of balance. Mm-hmm. But by your logic, if you, ex- if you extend – right, for slavery. But when you extend your logic, you then give a four-seat Senate majority – permanently almost to the democratic party um but you give Why? representation to the puerto rico and uh washington dc citizens so a they're still having laws that we create that affect them and b why is why are we why are they permanent democratic strongholds is it because the republicans have spent so many years and money mm-hmm. and time keeping them down yeah the only group yeah the only group that donald trump hasn't alienated in terms of blocks of voters are QAnon and white supremacists like you know (laughs) there is a a lot of validity to your argument in that republicans have not tried the the culture is changing the citizens and the millennial and gen z generations are changing and the message by and large from the republican party is not viable like the world is moving on from you which they tantrum and so that's what a lot of this show is about is what legal means do we have to preserve our power because fuck all these people for moving away from us for leaving us you know libertarians like we're the canaries in the coal mine and i said this to my friend mike who runs the young republicans here in the state i go i was i was sympathetic to the argument that donald trump did a lot of good stuff for libertarian you know, ideals in January. I was, I thought Eric Holcomb was a fairly decent governor in some respects in January. I would crawl over heaping hot coals to vote against the two of those people after their performance in 2020. You know, libertarians in the Libertarian Party 
would probably prefer to be a part of one of the other two major parties because it would just make life a lot easier. We'd be part of winning campaigns. But we exist in this ecosystem because you two suck. You know, you're the ones who radicalized us. And there is some validity to your argument that it... So what? Like, you you wouldn't have a, a Democratic... Like, Republicans, as we discussed in the last... Republicans had a map that was going to give them more seats in 2020. Mm-hmm. And they blew it. Yep. <laughs> They're the ones who blew it. Donald Trump is the one who's lost all these... Sec- you know, Donald mm-hmm. Trump is the one who lost. And they... It's, but it's always the media's fault. There's always an excuse. There's never some navel-gazing going, maybe mm-hmm. we're the problem. And so if there is a permanent majority in the Senate, you're probably right. Like, it's on them. Well, it's, but it's not permanent. That's what I'm saying is that if the parties would start representing the people's thoughts and needs in that district of the new Puerto Rico or the D.C., mm-hmm. then, then maybe that party would get them people to vote for them. It's right. it, this idea that this state is, you know, California is red. That's it. It didn't be California right. was Republican like 40, 50 years ago. And they, 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 not, they elected Ronald Reagan as their governor, God's sake. Nixon. It's, it's, it's the way times change and society changes and how the parties re- react to that and how they represent their people that all changes that. And it goes in flux. And this idea of a permanent anything is just really silly. That's the Correct. argument it's, against. Hold on, Harry. I have a brilliant point to make. Um that's part of the argument against the uh, the electoral college people who want to to get rid of it. Like, there's fluidity in the states. Like you're viewing, I say to this to Ryan all the time. I'm like, you're viewing the current red blue map as a permanent state. It's never going to change. When there's generational cycles, just like you mentioned, like Indiana flip flops, mm-hmm. Ohio was is going to be a swing state again now. You know, like, because our politics is fluid, so are our states in the Electoral College. But we'll get to the point where, ironically, the Electoral College may be the thing that saves uh, 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 Biden from losing to Trump, which will be hilarious, and I'll never stop laughing at Ryan. Um, But go ahead, Harry. All right. So, like, you're right. Uh, With everything is moving. Texas is moving. Everything is just changing. And it is it was this is election is Trump's to lose. New York could have been in play. If played correctly, if the Republicans did what they should have done, New York could have been in play and won New York. Just this brilliant move. But they didn't. They just kind of like laughed at it and poked fun at it. Like, did you guys could have got New York? You know that because they were really pissed off at Cuomo and they were locked down. Like the, you, you had these people, you have all these people that are angry and pissed off. You could have did something, but you didn't. It's 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 it's. I, I really thought, I really thought my heart of heart was believing that New York could have been in play. And it's just not. Yeah, it's they blew it. They, just like they we talked it. about in the last they episode, blew they blew it. Um, blew so it. so the Bloomberg has a brand called City Lab, and they uh, posted a long article um, detailing some of the census stuff and why it matters and what's going on. And it's titled, The 2020 Census is Being Sabotaged, says Leading U.S. Statistician. Uh, posted on the 15th, and I'm just going to pull some of the quotes here. Um, so, quote, the population count, so they t- they talked to this um, statistician who focuses on the census, and let me give his name for the sake of uh, in- interest. So, Robert Santos, vice president and chief methodologist at the Urban Institute, Institute and president-elect of the American Statistical Association. 
those are the groups. Uh, so the population count is responsible for making decisions about trillions of dollars in federal funding, and Santos did not mince words about how distorted the undercount could be. Uh, the coronavirus pandemic forced the Census Bureau to extend the window for going door to door to count households, and that had not yet that had not yet responded. People like us, people like me, people like my you know girlfriend, like we we're younger. Who who takes their sweet time to fill out their census? Younger people. So we didn't get counted. We're not counted here in this in this district in Marion County. So now that undercount will be represented in both state and local and federal races and districts when the districts are redrawn this year. Uh, so there will be a disproportionate amount of younger people not counted. Uh, instead of wrapping up operations in July, the Census Bureau, with the support of the White House, set a deadline of October 31st. The agency also asked Congress to move the date for submitting the, my, the final count from December to April 2021. Then the ground shifted. In July, the White House decided it wanted the data sooner, announcing that the final count was due in December after all, and the non-response follow-up should wrap up early to give the agency time to finalize the data five months earlier than the Census Bureau requested. I do not believe that a fair and accurate census can occur, uh, Santos said. I expect it to be one of the most flawed censuses in history. The court decision alone is not responsible for this looming disaster, Santos said. Any undercount will be the result of a perfect storm of factors, starting with a call to add a citizenship question to the census that was rejected by the Supreme Court in 2019. In subsequent months, the president asked the Census Bureau to use administrative data to determine the citizenship status of every American adult and issued an executive order to exclude undocumented immigrants from the apportionment of congressional districts. Plus, the White House installed several hand-picked appointees inside the Census Bureau. Heard that one before. Leading to internal fears of political interference. See the FDA and CDC. Critics said the administration was fulfilling a secret plan by the late Thomas Hoffeller, the GOP's so-called Michelangelo of gerrymandering, to use the citizenship question to boost, give a boost to Republicans and non-Hispanic whites. Then came the pandemic. My suspicion, uh, Santos continues, is that congressional allocation is going to be a done deal. If the actual whole person counts are used, regardless of the flaws that everyone knows are going to be baked into the census, population counts are used as the basis for the next 10 years of population projections, and those projections are used for really important studies and to issue federal funding to the tune of $1.5 trillion per year. It's possible that one could do some independent research first to identify the areas of problems geographically in terms of undercount or overcount, college students, duplicates, and such, and second, to come up with an estimate for what that was so a correction could be made to the population projections. Uh, rather than starting with a severely flawed census and then baking those errors in for the next 10 years of population projections, one could start with those and make adjust adjustments for known deficiencies. But uh, so they go on to talk about, so why the census question, why change the deadline what are the reasons in this person's view that this is taking place at the at the level of the president there are two potentially reason two potential reasons both are nefarious the first is that it allows you to do hyper gerrymandering before block groups were so big that you could have a block group where part of it covered a minority neighborhood and part of it covered a non-minority neighborhood there was no way of splitting that up by getting down to the block level like the city block 
It will allow state legislatures to decide for themselves if they want to use citizenship counts rather than total population counts to create their state legislative boundaries. It's not a Republican thing because Democrats are going to win in probably a big blue wave at the, the state and federal levels. They're going to be the ones drawing the maps, which is so funny that it's such a self-owned by the Republicans that they, they uh, didn't d- ditch this guy in an effort to, <laughs> to, uh, to get better maps for the next 10 years. Instead, they, they have realized their error and that they're going to lose all these state legislatives uh, and governorships and senates and, and all this stuff in these lower ballot races. So they're freaking out trying to figure out how to sab- salvage the next 10 years and not give – Democratic minor- majorities uh, because of gerrymandering. The gerrymandering in this year is going to be absolutely insane on both sides, trying to give themselves. That's why we should have maps drawn by AI. If my if AI infects every area of our life, why doesn't it, it draw the maps for us here? Um, if they decide to use uh, so two blocks next to each other, one of them goes to one district and the other goes to the other district based on. The immigration stuff. What's the potentially nefarious purpose behind the White House plan? The other one, the first is hyper-gerrymandering. The second is enforcement. The Census Bureau collects information for statistical purposes, not for enforcement purposes. The notion of these counts ever being used for enforcement, basically targeting high-population, low-citizenship count blocks for ICE raids or whatever, that would be really, really problematic. That would be almost surely results in lawsuits. The Census Bureau doesn't want that. Most of the public doesn't want that. The interviewer asked, do you believe that the census is being rigged to produce an outcome that is favorable to Republicans? No, I wouldn't say it's being rigged. It's being sabotaged. Um, And so, you know, that's a big part of, of the census plays into gerrymandering on both of these teams. And they'll go through and they will draw a neighborhood in different parts. So that's why this census story matters because it's one of those things you're not paying attention to now, but in two to three to four years when you're like, why are there so many more Democrats? Well, it's because the Republicans lost a lot of legislatures this year because of making excuses for Donald Trump. And then the Democrats gerrymandered the crap out of all these various districts at the state and federal level and local level and gave themselves an advantage because that's exactly what the Republicans did 10 years ago. And you know who pays the price? All of us regular people who aren't paying attention. They benefit from it. We don't. Any thoughts? Uh, AI is not the solution. AI is terrible. Don't do it. It's trash. Uh, Why? AI is- AI is programmed by a human. Human has biases. Humans are flawed. Their code, their code that they can produce is also flawed. You believe that AI, yeah, AIs can be manipulated. AI is can uh, is you know they ha- AI is not this nonpartisan being in the corner. It has biases. It has you know like that, and we watch algorithms all the time shift and change based off of their you know how people program and how many people manipulate it. Code has yeah, issues. I have no idea what the solution is for the gerrymandering thing because it is horribly being abused and has been for decades. Mm-hmm. You've got a, a district in North – I think it's North Carolina that almost runs the entire state about five miles wide. 
Yeah. So let me show that representative of a a, a community Mm -hmm. when you're talking about people in your district who are 30, uh, 150, 200 miles away from you. Right. It doesn't make any sense. Right. And and the number of the number of representatives we have, too, isn't representative of what it was supposed to be. Right. That is the other big problem, too. We need to get more Mm -hmm. representatives in in the House. But that's probably a whole other conversation. Yeah, I think increasing the number of representation, decreasing those districts is, is a good way to do it. I think also, I think the biggest solution to deal with the gerrymandering problem is to remove a lot of the power the government does have against you. That's that's the, that's the biggest power. So the gerrymandering, think, okay, exactly. ooh, the gerrymandering again in this year. Ooh. Well, or, or, you know, non-governmental organization that studies this stuff and comes up with an unbiased representation of what? current neighborhoods and communities look like in your area should be the way to go but that's never going to happen because the people who are in power are gerrymandering to mm-hmm. keep themselves in power to prevent mm-hmm. that from happening to keep themselves in power right so i'm going to make this full screen so i'm not going to be able to see it but you guys tell me if it if it looks right or not but so in 20 uh, 20 2009 i was executive director of the libertarian party of indiana and uh, had a good relationship with the then current the, the then Secretary of State, who's running for Attorney General Todd Rakita. He appointed me to the Help America Vote Act Commission. Um, I always got along with him. I always liked him. Uh, and he took a he took some. It was political courage to do what he did, and uh, and he put together something called rethinking redistricting. So I'm going to make this full screen. All right, good. So you can't see it. All right, so I was a big fan of this when it came out. Too. Yes, and so. What Rakita did as Secretary of State was said, let's redraw the legislative districts to better represent people and not politics. And so he talked about, and I'll put this in the show notes so you can see the document for yourself. This document I had to archive uh, because when the new Secretary of State came in, he deleted it and made sure nobody ever saw this again. Here we are 10 years later because I'm annoying. Uh, And so (laughs) he worked with the Brennan Center and Common Cause, which is all over voting issues. Great resource. We cite them a lot on these these two episodes because they they are a nonpartisan great organization. And he worked with them to say, all right, so let's say fair maps existed. What would those look like for Indiana? And, you know, he points out that if you were in, in Terre Haute, Indiana, which on the the west side of Indiana, if you're thinking of it like a boot, you know, and the boot kind of tilts towards the west, towards California. Terre Haute's on the left side in the smack dab middle. Evansville is down at the very bottom of the boot. Milwaukee is just up above Chicago. The district that in the eighth district for the last ten years, if you live in Terre Haute, you are you are or if you live in the uh, the top of the eighth district in Indiana, for instance, right here. You are closer to Milwaukee than you are to Evansville. <laughs> so, you know, none of these maps really made sense. And so he put together on the left, so here's the existing map of house districts. Mm-hmm. And so you have, you know, all these wild, crazy maps, and they're all, like, weirdly drawn. And it's basically they split neighborhoods and communities in half mm-hmm. because on this side it's a bunch of Democrats and on this side it's a bunch of Republicans and so for 10 years, we've really only had about half a dozen state house races that are competitive because it saves the other two parties money, mm-hmm. but it doesn't benefit the people of Indiana. And so he put together these maps that try to include and keep intact different counties and include various fair groups. 
you know, House that, that that's the state Senate map. This is the House legislative map. And this is even weirder. Look at this one over here where you have this big like it like is hugging another district. Mm-hmm. You know, and so it, you look at this one that goes from Indianapolis to Richmond, this long one, <laughs> you know, instead of it just being Henry County and, and blocking it kind of like this, they just used basically census data. Just how many people live in an area? Let's draw the maps, not mm-hmm. using political data of who votes in what way on these blocks. You know, the congressional districts, if you live here, you're closer to Milwaukee than you are down here. You know, so this is a much fair drawing of the map because it's it's drivable as opposed to not drivable. So uh, using all kinds of, you know, data showing community split, this is a town totally split. So it's a great visual representation of the problems that are taking place in Indiana. And this happens everywhere because all sides do it. Right. Well, Todd Rakita pissed off the Indiana House and Senate Republicans so badly he was going to run for Senate in 2012. He pissed them off so badly with this that he, he, he wasn't able to run because he tried to do the right thing and he got punished for it. You know? And so that's, this data that is being pulled for the census is going to be used for this kind of stuff for these purposes and other purposes like rounding up illegals. So if that's your thing, cool. But uh, just so you are paying attention to the census issue and why it matters and what when you're when you're looking back going how did this happen think about this this episode so let's start talking about the uh voter suppression tactics and basically the trump's the trump campaign's war on voting <laughs> uh because I, i've said it before and i don't i'll repeat it here again you know and we alluded to it frequently trump has a lot of personality traits that could have made him not in the libertarian sense, maybe in the libertarian sense, but not necessarily libertarian sense, a quote-unquote great president. Trump is a Trump really has no ideology. I'm not going to call him a centrist. He really doesn't believe anything. He's very transactional. And so, you know, if he had followed Bannon, Bannon's advice was get elected, do a big bill for infrastructure, look like you're bipartisan, work with the other side, and then use that infrastructure bill to send graft back to all these congressional districts and then you can go every time you fly into any swing state be like i built that bridge you know which from a libertarian perspective all that's horrible but from a pure politics perspective bannon was totally right because people love free shit but jared was like now nah, we need to focus on foreign policy and we need to focus on the the culture war stuff and jared won and bannon lost and here we are and so, you know, Trump also has a high threshold for pain. He can say anything, do anything, flip-flop. It doesn't matter. He doesn't care what you think about him. His supporters don't care that he has three positions on an issue within a week. You know, he has a lot of these traits where if he had been less focused on his own personal vendettas, he probably could have gotten a lot done, and, and this would be a slam-dunk election because of the tax cuts and the economy. But it's not, and everyone's exhausted by this fool. <laughs> if he had been, if he had been anything other than what he is, right? If he had, <laughs> yeah. if he had been anyone else, you know, and it's, it's just so funny to see, like, you know, when we talk about this stuff. Oh, you should be nicer to Republicans. You should do more outreach to Republicans. This is not going to win over the conservatarian vote. Like, 
Nah, I'm not going to make excuses for the conservatarians. Like, they, they have to own some of the stuff that we've talked about. Right. Um, right. Just like Dude, I'm going to look at, at every time Biden passes something unlibertarian at the Biden libertarians and be like, you, you for this? Like, thanks. But mm-hmm. so yeah. uh, Trump, because Trump is in trouble and he knows it, uh, he is continually over the last couple months saying, Rigged election, rigged election, rigged election. Because there's no way he's going to concede. Everybody knows it. He he said his win was fraudulent <laughs> in a tweet. <laughs> and we talked a lot about why his statements around the vote is just inaccurate factually. With And you can go back and listen to last week's episode. But now we're looking forward. So he's laying the groundwork for why this was a fake election. And there's a ton of lawsuits that are being filed around the country that play into the Trump campaign strategy around this. And like I said in the beginning of the show, with the whataboutism, well, Democrats do that too. No, they don't. So we, we look to find, like, where are the Democrats challenging the ability to vote? And it, we just didn't find anything. It is, it is a strategy by the Republican Party to limit the vote because their belief, rightly or wrongly, is that the more people vote, the more it will help Democrats. And so we need to restrict the amount of people that can vote specifically in black areas to keep people from voting. And they're explicit about not wanting people to vote. Like you heard it in that conference. They're talking about it in conferences where it can be videotaped and then published on the Washington Post website. Uh, So according to the New York Times, and again, you can go and look at our show notes and look at all this. According to the New York Times, a Republican strategy for November's election Envisions recruiting up to 50,000 volunteers in 15 key states to monitor polling places and challenge ballots and voters deemed suspicious. Well, Reinhold, Harry, is there a standard for a suspicious-looking voter when they walk into the polls? Like, what criteria are we judging that upon? So obviously it's it's going to be, you know, whether they're, thinking a lot like they haven't made up their mind yet right Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. a certain way they're walking harry they're scratching their head i think is what he's saying you know you know you know like we got a color chart too just case you know how they're feeling that day right Um, you know so like like a a mood like a a mood yeah like like a mood ring right yeah yeah. right you know the color of their ring is how they're going to judge it you're saying quick or now with COVID, I've got this magic device. I'm going to point at them like, ooh, you have a fever. You can't come in here. Right. Uh, if, if you're wearing a mask, you're not allowed in. If you're not, if you're not wearing a mask, you're allowed to vote. Um, so this would be part of a $20 million plan that would all allot millions to challenge lawsuits by Democrats and voting rights advocates seeking to loosen state re- restrictions on ballots. So as Democrats and voting rights advocates like um, – uh, Stacey Abrams has a group as they're trying to allow people to vote easily, quickly, and effectively. The Republicans are suing to stop that. You know, so things like making Election Day a federal holiday. Well, that's no good. We can't do that. Uh, we talked a lot about the barriers to absentee voting and and just voting in general and the shrinking of polling places and voter ID. Uh, so those are those are some of the uh, the things that. The, the fair fight the Stacey Abrams group will will do that Republicans will fight. Um, besides the National Party and Trump's campaign strategists, conservative advocacy groups are also suing, recruiting poll monitors and mounting media campaigns of their own 
Josh Helton, a Republican consultant, said at CPAC, Republicans will have an election day operation that, quote, probably no other presidential campaign has had before. It's going to be all hands on deck. Normally, a presidential campaign will organize people in every district and every polling place to, like, stand outside and hand you the crap that you're not going to look at. This group, this campaign is hiring people to stand inside the polling place as a poll watcher. So the way that this works is if you are, uh, you can volunteer for the clerk and you can be a judge or a person that checks people in or you can help people fill out their ballots or put, put make sure the machines work and all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But you can also be a watcher. So as, as a Libertarian Party official, I could call the county clerk and I could get watcher cards and it was open to all three po- political parties, and I could hand that card to a trusted Libertarian Party person, and on election day what we would do is when we got wind, the people would – people call their party headquarters, right? So if you're in a district, you're at a precinct, and something looks suspicious, people will call the Republican Party if they're Republicans, or you know they'll, they'll call the Libertarian Party if they're having a problem – and I would then dispatch people to go check that out. So I'd have a team of people who were on our side that I knew I could trust, that knew I knew weren't hyperbolic and going. they were going to assess the situation. They were very thoughtful. You know, like Reinhold would be one of those people, like he's going to go, he's going to suss it out, and he's going to tell me what's going on because he's not going to get there and be like, oh, my God, they're doing that. Blah. You know, like one of the, the hot take people, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, I, you know, believe it or not, Sometimes the standards of Lou Skalt was one of those people for me. Um, so they'd go and check it out. Now, the Republicans have lawyers. We had a, a lawyer <laughs> that would do this for us on Election Day. And so you'd send your lawyer out there to kind of check out what's going on in the polling place. Well, the Republicans are going to put that on steroids and trying to challenge any voter forcing provisional votes on, on Election Day. And this can sometimes be seen as voter intimidation. Um, so... Did one of you want to jump in? Because I can't see the screen. So just say hey, by the way. Oh, now I can see it. Okay. So besides – go ahead, Reinhold. No, I was just saying not currently. I don't – okay. you're on a roll. On All right. I don't want to interrupt you much. Thank you. So just so just keep going. All right. Don't, uh, so we have – we, we uh, still – Reinhold says. He says. Uh, we're we're at an hour and a half, and I still have – we are just starting the notes. I have – podcasts to play i i'm so prepared there's so much mm-hmm. info in this so stay tuned um so <laughs> hey, hang on. Re- republicans say democratic efforts to relax voting restrictions are partisan moves that demand a firm response and that republican countermeasures reflect standard political mobilizing so after 40 years the rnc can continue a ballot security campaign without court approval because of a 2018 federal court ruling and 35 years after it was imposed, a judge lifted a consent decree barring the RNC from pursuing ballot security measures. So in 1982, there was a court ban on Republican Party voter fraud operations, and then it was modified again in 86 and 1990. And each time after the courts found instances of Republicans intimidating or working to exclude minority voters in the name of preventing fraud. So there is historical precedent and court rulings against what they're saying they're going to do is as evidenced by what we've just talked about in that last segment. And in their 1981 lawsuit to stop the RNC from engaging in certain practices at the polls, the DNC attested that New Jersey, the, in the gubernatorial election year, 
The RNC had sent sample ballots to community of color and then had the names for each ballot returned as undeliverable removed from the polls. There is a specific name for this uh, that I need to find um, because there's a whole list of ways that the Republicans have t- – now, both sides can do it, but typically it's the Republican Party going into these communities of color and trying to drive down the vote. So, for instance, in 2004, when I volunteered for the Andy Horning for uh, Congress campaign, we were in Center Township, the most populated township in all of Indiana, and it's a black township. It's in the center of Indianapolis. And our yard signs kept getting stolen. And I couldn't figure out why. Then I got a tip from somebody that they were stealing the yard signs of Andy Horning, the congressional candidate, and and Marvin uh, Scott, the black Republican Senate candidate, who had his face on his signs. And uh, who is they? The Mitch Daniels for Governor campaign, the Republican. And I went and confronted the, the Mitch campaign, and they said, yeah, we're doing it. We don't want to have happen in 2004 what happened in 2000. Because... What had happened is uh, the the black voter turnout in 2000 cost the Republican candidate in, in a highly contested race the governorship. And so they weren't taking any chances. So they were throwing away fellow Republican yard signs. That was one of the moments when I was like, I don't think I can be a Republican. <laughs> so you're just like, man, these dirty motherfuckers. So oh, wow, I don't think, I don't think I've ever heard that story from you. Uh, yeah, I've, I try not. I love Mitch Daniels and I revere him, and so I try not to tell it publicly. But mm. you know, I remember sitting in their headquarters where Angie's List is now, over on the east side, and and the the campaign person I was talking to, she's like, "Yeah, we're doing it. We're trying to make sure that the black voter doesn't turn out in Marion County." So voter caging is when uh, a party will send out a mailer to. Uh, to folks, and if it gets returned, they then go and check if that address voted, and then challenge that vote to toss them out. Uh, a lot of times, you'll see lying flyers where um, you'll see deceptive information being dropped on where to vote or how to vote. You'll hear robocalls. So in yeah. two, 2010, uh, the ex Republican. Uh, the former campaign manager of ex-Republican Governor of Maryland, Bob Ehrlich, was convicted of ordering 20, 2010 robocalls aimed at black voters, implying they could stay home and relax because the Democratic candidate Martin O'Malley had already won. Um, there's also felon disenfranchisement. So, you know, an estimated 2.2 of the nearly 6 million Americans barred from voting because of prior felony convictions are black. Uh, and they're fighting in Florida to keep... Uh, felons from having the ability to vote because obviously you don't want uh, Democrats voting. You got voter ID laws. I'm personally was never um, had an objection to voter ID laws uh, because if you can at the time the argument in the Indiana was if you can go to Blockbuster and rent a movie and you need an ID, why wouldn't you need an ID to vote? Um, but there is an argument to be said that certain poor communities cannot get a voter ID easily. Um, there's voter purges. States are supposed to keep voter rolls current, but sometimes removal of dead or no longer valid voter registrations is undertaken in a reckless or partisan manner that can disenfranchise eligible voters. Again, there's nothing wrong with purging your voter rolls. So like when I used to get the voter ID, the voter list that I talked about in the last episode, there'd be almost 10 million people 
in that list, and there's only 6.7 million people in Indiana. So that's a why carry all that data, especially if it has social security numbers in it, if you don't need it. But people will use that perfectly reasonable activity and say, well, we didn't do it nefariously. We did it. You know, you're just being sensitive. Um, sometimes billboards will be put up. Yeah. yeah, you'll have poll watchers. Again, poll watchers, nothing necessarily wrong with poll watchers, but there's every single election I've ever volunteered in, covered as a reporter or as a party official, there was always a phone call from somebody saying one of your volunteers is blocking the entry to the polling place. It's it's inevitable, right? So, like, people people aren't thinking. Amazon's here. People aren't thinking, and they're talking to the other guy. Like, you're, you're standing outside of a polling place, passing out literature. You're enjoying a conversation with uh, the other guy who's doing the same for the other candidate or the lady. Uh, and... You're, you don't realize you're standing in front of the door and then a hardcore partisan from another party will be like, you're blocking my entryway. This is illegal. And they'll call your party and get mad at you. you know. And so that poll watcher then gets reported and, and it, sometimes that stuff can blow out of proportion too. And then there are sometimes where people are legitimately trying to block the, the doorway and they're trying to keep people. They're trying to intimidate them before they walk in. I've seen it in every election you know, both both of those kind of instances happening. Um, you know, there's increasing long lines during early voting, making voter registration more difficult. You know, and then there's there's fraud. So those are some of the ways that there can be some voter intimidation through some of these things. And so that's what a lot of what was happening, and that's part of the, why the court decree came down in '81. Um, Democrats alleged back in 1991 that our, the the in '81, excuse me. Um, had hired off-duty cops to per- patrol majority minority precincts wearing, quote, National Ballot Security Task Force armbands. Uh, these details were enough to s- secure a consent decree between the two-party organizations and the court in 82 stopped the GOP from engaging in such practices. That consent decree was updated in 87 after Republicans created a voter challenge list of black voters uh, from whom letters had been returned as undeliverable. Uh, with an RNC official saying that the list, quote, could keep the black vote considerably down. The decree was modified again in 90 after a court ruled that the RNC had violated it by not telling the state parties about its provisions, which had led to the North Carolina GOP sending 1,500 postcards to potential voters listing voter regulations in an apparent attempt at intimidation. The GOP violated the court order again in 2004 after another voter challenge list targeted black voters. Federal courts moved to allow the decree to expire in December of 2017 after the Republicans promised to be nice, which was later finalized, and uh, they are back on their shit. Uh, And so in 2018, ruling allows, quote, the RNC to play by the same rules as the Democrats. Now the RNC can work more closely with state parties and campaigns to do what we do best, Mandy Merritt said, a spokeswoman for the RNC. Ensure that more people vote through our unmatched field program. So... Uh, lawsuits around the country. Now, now, I, listen. Some of this is shady shit, and this is what when you hear people talk about Republicans trying to decrease voter turnout in black communities. That's what they're. This is the stuff that they're talking about. We we in white communities from Lily Lily Ass White Plainfield. We never had any of this, so I never saw it. I never heard of it in the in the places that I worked. I never participated in that when I worked for the Republican Party. 
I never heard any of this stuff expressly. So when you're a volunteer and you're just kind of around, you don't see this stuff happening. But I also live in a hardcore red state. There's no danger in it. You know, but other than the the one thing, you know, you've got a – my limited experience in terms of that stuff, I always said, well, that seems like a myth. They're just kind of making this stuff up, Reinhold, those Democrats. You got to remember the the Republicans are the party of Lincoln and the Democrats were the party of Jim Crow. So why do you think why are they making these accusations that Republicans are doing anything that limits black vote? That just seems completely out of line, right? Completely impossible. Right, Harry? And Harry, you're muted. Someone's got to do that at least one episode, right? <laughs> but no. We we're we're so professional here. We have to we have to make sure we we don't we we have to unprofessionalize it a little bit, or we just we're it's too intimidating to all the other podcasts. Yeah, correct. Uh, see, the thing is that the reason why it I think it's the, the exact same thing where people are trying to say against the Democrat parties that yeah, it's not a projection. They're doing what what they're doing is projection, and to me, that's what the Republicans do. This is the thing that they're projecting on, and it's just more of a because the political parties it's a game they believe the other side is playing the game just like they're playing the game they're going to do everything the other game so why don't we do this we have the ability to do this we can get especially in indiana we can get by by doing this because we control just about everything outside the donut so heck yeah we can get away with this this should be a layup yeah accusation recently that that biden had an earpiece and he was being fed the, the answers on the debate right uh, which would be horribly if it was true because he didn't do very good. So those questions, you know, <laughs> they, that was a, that was a bad mistake for them to do that. But that goes back to 2004 mm-hmm. when they accused Bush of having a machine on his back where he was getting radio t- transmissions and had a earpiece. Oh, that's ear. right. Yeah. Crazy yeah. stuff. That, it's amazing how like you give it 10 years and everybody just walks to the other side of the street and picks up the other guy's yard signs and, and or protest yeah. signs. Yeah. Yeah. But Reinhold's standing on the wall to make sure the anti-war left can't come back. He's just like, nope, you're over there now that you come back over here. <laughs> so let's talk about the lawsuits that are happening around the country. Um, places like Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, and half a dozen other key states have been filed to limit the ballot access with numerous countersuits involved. So Biden has uh, is, uh, brought on two former solicitor generals to and, and his own counsel for his campaign to basically run a war room to fight a lot of these lawsuits that are being filed by the, uh, the Trump campaign. Uh, and so they're having to spend significant resources to help these state parties and county parties fight a lot of this stuff that's happening uh, Republican parties across. So in Wisconsin, for instance, like the uh, I'm going off of memory on this article. So the, the Green Party in Wisconsin had kind of not gotten around to filling out who was going to be on their on their ballot. And the uh, big Republican law firm in Wisconsin found out about it and contacted them and said, hey, do you want to be on the ballot or not? Because you need to this. Today's the last filing day to do this. Uh, or, or today's the last day to get the ballots printed. So they like did emergency motions. So the Republican Party was doing le- free legal work for the Green Party in Wisconsin to get them on the ballot and force the state to reprint all the ballots in the state to put the Green Party on it. You know, it's stuff. It's little stuff like that 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 are are happening around the country. 
So they've been fighting in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania over the cutoff date for counted, counting mailed ballots and in North mm-hmm. Carolina over witness requirements. Ohio is grappling with drop boxes for ballots as Texas faces a court challenge for an extra day of early voting. You know, we've seen in Texas where Abbott put one drop-off box. So, you know, instead of if you don't trust the mail and, and trying to ease the pain of the mail uh, of the Postal Service in terms of getting these things back, the the drop boxes are popping up around the country. So mm-hmm. clerks can then go and pick those up securely and safely. And then in, in this week in California, you had Republican operatives uh, posing next to non-official drop-off boxes that had labels official ballot drop-off box and then the republican party would then take your ballot for you and drop it off at at the uh at the clerk and not now that's not technically illegal you know but i'm sure in their minds they're going we are the more moral we these ballots are safer with us (laughs) and there may be absolutely nothing nefarious to it they are trying to help but like why should we trust you? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, even if you're doing the right thing and, and you're sitting there and you're the guy in that photo that got taken down by the GOP next to the fake drop-off box, like, why should anybody trust you? Like, the, you know what I mean? Like, the, just encourage people to use the official official Dropbox, not yours, because it looks sus, bruh. Well, it's a, you know, they're, 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 they're righteous, we're the righteous. I know, yeah, but like, and then they can't figure out why like, nobody, like, guys, you've been bitching about ballot harvesting, which is exactly this. You collect a bunch of ballots and take it in for people, and you go, you're doing the exact same thing you're bitching about in places like North Carolina, so what the hell? It's different. Right, so the race is already <laughs> regarded as the most litigated in American history, due in part because of the massive, massive, massive expansion of mail and absentee vote voting, the uh, Loyola Law School professor Justin Levitt, a former Justice Department elections official, has tallied some 260 lawsuits arising from coronavirus. The RNC says it's involved in more than 40 lawsuits, and a website operated by a chief Democratic lawyer lists active cases worth watching in about 15 states. A legal challenge in Pennsylvania offers a good example of how the Trump campaign is aimed at suppressing turnout to help Trump win in crucial battleground states. In a complaint filed June 29th in the Western District of Pennsylvania, the Trump campaign and the RNC asked a federal judge to ban the use of ballot drop boxes in Pennsylvania for the general election. Now, let's just pause and ask, what do you really care if there's a drop box or not? So, like, a lot of this is, like, what do you really care if there's an extra three days for the mail-in ballots to be returned to because of the post office? What do you really care if there's more than five drop boxes in a county? What do you really care about? Like, you have to ask yourself, like, what's the problem with any of this? And there's really no good answer, except you know the answer because we heard it out of their mouth earlier in the show. So... Now, these containers look like big mailboxes. Several states have been using them forever, for years, and Pennsylvania deployed drop boxes across the state because of the mail, mail stuff and, and COVID-19 and trying to keep people from showing up to the polls and long lines and all that. Uh, attorneys for the Trump campaign argued that the drop boxes would allow, quote, fraudsters in the general election to vote more than once, destroy ballots, and engage in other fa- forms of ballot tampering that violate the Pennsylvania and U.S. constitutions. 
So the campaign requested Pennsylvania be required to throw out ballots that aren't mailed back inside a a state-mandated secrecy envelope and change a provision of a new election law that bars poll watchers from monitoring sites outside the county where they're registered to vote. So you can only watch a poll if you're registered in that county. You can't come from uh, the rural areas to come and watch inside the city, for instance. Now, in its court filing, the campaign argued that poll watchers from any county in the state should be allowed to monitor drop boxes if those boxes are ultimately allowed to be used in the general election. So, in other words, can you stand next to the drop box and just watch people drop it in? <laughs> right? Like, what? Like, you really care that you're going to spend all of your day standing next to a post office box going... Are you registered to vote? Let me see your ID, which then leads to charges of voter intimidation. Because remember our story earlier of the conversation in front of the door, how every single time you get somebody crying voter intimidation when you're just having a conversation. What you need to remember is think about these stories, right? So when all this stuff gets blown out of proportion, you need to remember these, these more harmless stories sometimes are harmless stories. Sometimes they are nefarious, but not everything is nefarious. Um, so a judge in August halted the lawsuit until October 5th to give state courts time to resolve the dispute. Then the Pennsylvania Supreme Court approved the use of drop boxes and upheld the provision barring poll watchers from monitoring sites outside their home counties. So you got to be at least from your home county to watch, to stand next to your drop box. Um, the... Deadline for counting ballots in Pennsylvania under the ruling late boxes can be counted if they are postmarked by the time the polls close on Election Day and received by 5 p.m. on November 6th. Uh, The Trump campaign praised a separate ruling last month by Pennsylvania Supreme Court, which barred people from submitting other votes absentee ballots, a practice known as ballot harvesting. Democrats argued the practice is not widespread, typically consists of spouses delivering their partner's votes, and doesn't lead to double voting and other voting fraud. Like we said... There isn't widespread fraud in mail-in balloting. Uh, Joe Joe Katz, the Republican chair of the board of the commissioners, Snyder County, a rural, deeply conservative area that Trump carried by 46 points four years ago, hired a forensic specialist to examine suspicious-looking mail-in ballots from the primary that he said appeared to have the same handwriting. Overall, the county received 3,100 mail-in ballots. The forensic report concluded there was no evidence of voter fraud, Kant said. Quote, other than two instances where it appears a spouse filed, filled out their partner's ballot, it appears none of the other ballots were of the same handwriting. Time and time again, this stuff gets studied and it gets tossed out. So Republican state lawmakers in Pennsylvania asked the U.S. Supreme Court to put a hold on a ruling that extends a deadline for receiving and counting mail-in ballots. Republicans also objected to a portion of the state court's ruling that ordered counties to count ballots that arrive during the three-day extension period, even if they lacked a postmark or legible post post office. Now let's go to Iowa, another swing state. They filed the Trump campaign filed three lawsuits in the state of Iowa over local officials' plans to send absentee ballots to registered voters with pre-filled information, like a voter's voter identification number. So you all have a voter identification number. Do you know it? I don't know mine. Do you know how to look it up? They were trying to be helpful, trying to fill in that information. The Republicans said, no, we need to make it harder. You need to take that extra step. When you think about marketing and you think about customer service in any kind of area, the less barriers there are, the better, you know, and because 
People like think about the shopping carts online and the nags. Hey, you have this in your shopping cart. Come back because people get distracted. They forget. And, and, and it's so they're trying to be helpful. And the Republicans said, no, thank you. Uh, they said they had violated state law by pre-filling portions of the absentee ballot. Two Iowa judges sided with the Trump campaign in the cases in Lynn and Woodbury counties. About 50,000 people in Lynn County will need to request another absentee ballot. And 14,000 of Woodbury have, have to as well. How many of those 64,000 people are going to follow through on that and get another ballot? And so, again, it's, it's, you're, you're a voter not paying attention, not listening to this podcast. You're confused and not knowing what's going on. Now let's go to Nevada. On August 4th, the Trump campaign filed a, a lawsuit in Nevada. Notice this is all kind of August when all this stuff is happening because things weren't going well. Uh, the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit in Nevada over its plan to send ballots to every active registered voter in the state. At the beginning of August, the Nevada state legislator passed a bill to reform the state's election process amid the pandemic. The bill passed along party lines and was signed into law. According to the report, in addition to automatically sending ballots to voters, the legislation also extended the deadline for when mail-in ballots could be counted. The bill was also relaxed. The previous restrictions for who is permitted to handle ballots on behalf of another person and a federal judge in Nevada dismissed the campaign's lawsuit on September 18th. Now let's go to New Jersey. August 18th, the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit against New Jersey Governor Murphy over his executive order to administer the election mostly by mail. The executive order directed active registered voters in the state to send mail in ballots, which they had the options of returning via the Postal Service placing in the secure drop boxes, or delivering to poll workers on Election Day. Lawyers for the Trump campaign filed a lawsuit in federal court claiming the governor's order violated both the Constitution's electors and elections clauses and the 14th Amendment. So while the campaign lawyers argued only the state legislature had the power to make the broad changes to elections and that they could not be made by the governor in an executive order, the New Jersey state legislator voted to codify the executive order after that. The Trump campaign changed its strategy in the lawsuit by later arguing the New Jersey election directly violated the Constitution and federal statutes. In North Carolina, another swing state, on September 26th, the Trump campaign and the RNC sued to stop North Carolina election officials from enforcing rule changes that can increase the number of ballots counted. Last month, the state elections board issued new guidance to allow mail-in absentee ballots with deficient information to be fixed without forcing the voter to fill out a new blank ballot. Under the change, voters who neglect to provide information on their envelope about a witness will only have to turn in the affidavit confirming they fill out the original ballot. There's been some more shenanigans in North Carolina. Uh, We just don't have time to get to everything. This is just trying to give you a broad overview of the many, many campaigns uh, that they're waging in court across the country. In Montana... The Trump campaign and other GOP groups sued the state on September 2nd over Steve Bullock's plan to grant counties the decision to run their elections entirely by mail. This template lawsuit appears to be part of a pattern of lawsuits across the country by Republican Party operatives to limit access to voting during the pandemic. It would not be hard to put together a kit, so to speak, and then send it to your state Republican parties if you're the Trump campaign, have lawyers draft it, have the Republican state parties tweak it and then file these lawsuits, which is part of why this is happening across the country. Ohio, another swing state. Biden leads by 0.5 percent. 
A coalition of voting groups and Democrats have sued to force an expansion of ballot drop boxes from more than just one per county. The, the f- complaint against Secretary of State uh, Frank LaRose outlines what Democrats see as an urgent need to expand the number of, county, number of secure voter boxes in 88 counties. The lawsuit came after LaRose issued a directive that prohibited election boards from installing drop boxes anywhere but the board location. Separately last month, a federal judge rejected changes to the state signature matching requirement for ballots and ballot applications, handing a win to the state Republican election chief. Arizona <laughs> attorney Mark Bronovich asked an appeals court to hold off enforcing a ruling that gives Arizona voters who forget to sign their early ballots up to five days after the election to fix the problem. I, I neglected to mention this in the last episode. If you uh, send in your mail-in ballot, so you, you request an absentee ballot, or they send out the mail-in ballot automatically, the, the, the state election division or the county clerk, depending on the state, will track that ballot, sometimes by barcode. And they will, uh, y- you vote, you send it back in. Campaigns now have the ability and have had the ability to look and see, okay, this hardcore Democratic voter, typically young people, requested a ballot or got a ballot and they have not sent it back or this hardcore Republican or this squishy Republican or this uh, independent that has voted in these primaries. The campaigns will then follow up with that person trying to get them to return their ballot. And if the ballot comes back in and there's problems with it, let's say there's a mark on the outside or there is a, uh, a problem with the, the complicated envelope system that may exist in some of these places. You have the ability, then most states or some states will, will give you an opportunity to do what's called cure your ballot. And they will contact you and say, there was a mistake, you need to vote again. Republicans across the country are also trying to limit, if not eliminate, that notification system. So you don't know if your ballot was received. So if you vote absentee, there should be instructions, or you can call your county clerk and they can tell you if they got your ballot, did it get there in time, do you need to vote again, what's the process, can you file a provisional ballot, which is not an official ballot, but it, it can help with an appeal of an, a ballot. Um, so Arizona wanted to uh, give up to five days after the election to, to cure their ballot. Republicans sued against that. Democratic Secretary of State Katie Hobbs wanted the extra five days included in the state's updated election procedures manual. Bronovich refused to sign off of the provision, so Hobbs removed it. Democratic few groups filed a lawsuit. Bronovich's argue, again, the attorney general, the ruling brushes aside a state law requiring absentee ballots to be returned with a signature by close of polls on election day. Democratic groups argued it was unfair for election officials not to allow voters to cure unsigned ballots. Uh, Wisconsin, another swing state. Last week, the Wisconsin Supreme Court weighed whether to go along with conservatives who argued that 130,000 voters should be removed from the rolls while the Democratic Attorney General defended not purging them. However, the lawsuit is unlikely to be resolved by the state Supreme Court before the November election. The voter purge lawsuit argues the state election commission broke the law when it did not remove voters from the rolls who did not respond within 30 days to a mailing in October 2019 indicating they may have moved. The commission wanted to wait until after the election to remove anyone because of inaccuracies. Voters who 
moved were more concentrated in more democratic areas. Uh, Democrats argued that the lawsuit meant lower turnout on their side. Republicans countered that it was about reducing the likelihood of voter fraud and making sure that people who are moved uh, are, are not able to vote from their previous address. And a separate case from a federal appeals court upheld a ruling that spending the time of absentee ballots can be counted in, in Wisconsin. So, you know, all of these, it's, these are legitimate rules. These are legitimate laws. In some of these, there may be a legitimate problem. There may be legitimate violations of the election law. There may be, uh, you know, when you look at them on an individual basis with the pandemic, you may go, you're haphazardly trying to recreate new rules, bolting the wings on the plane as you're trying to fly. You know, you're, you're not doing it the right way, Democratic Secretary of State. We, the Republican Party, need to be a check on you. That's perfectly valid and reasonable. When taken together, though, Reinhold, it certainly looks like a strategy, especially considering they're cutting and pasting a lot of these lawsuits. Unmute yourself. I'm muted again. So it's twice now we've done it this episode. <laughs> so we've got we've got to bring the we've got to bring the quality down to not not really just be unfair to the rest of the podcast and how great we are. Um, Correct. No, but it's people think that there's not a collection of people inside the party who are getting together and strategizing. I mean, we've seen the evidence of that with the document that you showed before where the guy's daughter released them. And I, I was thinking that he had kind of recanted at the end of his life and said that he was kind of sorry that he had done some of that stuff, but it's still, that's got the blueprints. So people get the blueprints on how to do this. Mm -hmm. And then they go out and they find ways to make it happen. Um, but they try to make it appear innocent, right? That's so, part of the problem with Trump is like, yeah, Trump doesn't know the system and Trump is kind of an incompetent in certain ways. But the people that are around him are really effective. You know, like yeah. a Bill Barr, that, that's like, like, you know, these people are very effective at breaking the law and while covering their tracks. Like, you know, so it's when you have free reign because the boss doesn't know what he's doing. Like if you have an idiot boss, for instance, don't you get away with a lot more? Because oh, yeah. you can't, you can't get caught. You know that's kind of the the problem here is that you know there's a lot of ref- effective, competent people. If you think all Republicans are idiots, like if you think Mike Pence is an idiot because he's Trump's vice president, you are wrong. Like he's a very smart individual. You saw it in the debate. People underestimate him. The culture kind of looks down on Republicans and says they're stupid. They're not stupid. They really aren't. Like, and there's a lot of really effective, great lawyers. And that's part of what all this is about is even if Donald Trump is unpolished or doesn't know what he's talking about, there's a lot of people who want to maintain their power because they're getting away with a lot of stuff because he doesn't know any better that don't want to give up their power. And they're ready to move heaven and earth to get this done. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's a fight right now to to maintain that power because the demographics are going against them. So they're going to fight tooth and nail to to try to maintain that control and it's going to get worse probably you know as as that power starts to diminish all right so let's talk about why all this matters so david pluff was the campaign manager for barack obama and i'll never get you to go listen to this podcast so i'm going to play some portions and and we'll talk about it it's a great conversation with a reporter named bart gelman who wrote uh an excellent piece in the atlantic it's the cover story a must read. It's uh, printed. It's like 
it's 21 pages, so it's a long article by Barton Gelman, The Election That Could Break America. And so why does all this matter, right? So the Republicans, I'm sure these people that they think, some of them think they're doing the noble thing. Others know that they're employing a strategy to help the president win. Well, all right. I want to preface this by saying I don't I don't know if this I, I want to posit this because it could happen and if it does I want you to have some context before it happens. I'm not saying that it will happen. Right? So, I think sometimes with Trump, people take the extreme and then you go watch the video and he's he's joking, right? Like um there are some outrageous things like saying the marshals just – it was an extrajudicial killing on that American citizen by the U.S. marshals. That stuff he's not kidding about. But then, you know, like, I'm going to go with the crowd and kiss all of you. You know, like, that stuff's funny. Like, that's funny, Trump, yeah. right? You know, like – but then you read the New York Times the next day and it's like, <coughs> he's going to kiss people with <coughs> COVID. You know, it, so uh, – but when you have this much organization around a concept, you have to take it seriously and you have to understand. But do I think that Donald Trump is employing a strategy to steal the election using legal tactics? I think he's trying to win the election and this is his plan B. But the plan B is there and so we need to take a look at it. Now, if if it's a Biden landslide, this is probably not going to happen. But I think – Use your, use your thinking cap. Donald Trump is not going to go quietly. Um, so what what would that look like? And I can sit here and read to you more, but I was going to read more. So I want to play you some segments from this podcast with the author of that Atlantic article who did a ton of reporting around this strategy that we talked about today, none of which in our show notes that we just read you came from this article you know, it's separate from separate sources. There's just so much evidence here that this is taking place that you can have a 21-page article and still have a 17-page of show notes and, and not have the, the information cross. Um, but what's the point of it, right? What right. is the goal of doing this? And I can sit here and read to you some more, but I want to play Gelman's explanation of it after doing all this reporting and putting all of this stuff together into a thread. And it's uh, from a podcast called Campaign HQ with David Pluff. Again, his, uh, his campaign manager, Barack Obama's campaign manager. And this show combined with Hacks on Tap from the Obama, Romney, McCain uh, campaign managers, you get a lot of insight at presidential politics as to how they think about it and how it works on that level. Um, and so they're very interesting shows, uh, and they don't talk a lot about politics. They talk a lot about procedure, which is why this is an interesting listen. So um, this is from the uh, – and, and let me just put this up there to give full credit because we're going to play a chunk of this so you know where it's from. So you can go and check it out. So the next voice you hear is David Pluff. And I want to start with the 12th Amendment. So maybe most people listening uh, have some view of what the 12th Amendment is, but talk about the 12th Amendment and why it's important for us to understand what it is in the context of this election. So the 12th Amendment tells you how the president is selected, um, how, how the vote is counted. And it is unfamiliar, unfamiliar, I think, to a lot of Americans because we don't have to 
uh, bother knowing about it. There are a series of uh, important milestones that take place between Election Day and Inauguration Day. It's a 79-day period that I call the interregnum in my article in The Atlantic. Uh, and those are actually the way the president gets selected by our Constitution. Uh, it's just that they're normally formalities. Uh, 12th Amendment says that on January 6th, that the, the president of the Senate, in particular, Mike Pence, um, in the presence of the Senate and the House, so it's a joint meeting, um, shall open the certificates, uh, which are the certificates that are uh, that, that tell you what each state's electoral votes were cast, and the ballots shall then be counted, passive voice. And the problem with the passive voice there uh, is that you don't know how the count proceeds if the count is contested. And in particular, if... In any of the important states, uh, there is a controversy about who are the electors whose votes get to count. Uh, then you've got Congress left to solve that problem, and the Constitution is silent on, on how. Right. So, uh, Bart, you really um, are clear in the piece that, of course, if there's a Biden landslide and he were to be declared the winner that night, a lot of the um, parade of horribles you mentioned that may take place in the interregnum won't take place. Um, so uh, but let's talk about so that would be great. And, and my view, well, I'd like to know your view on this. So let's say we don't know on November 3rd, but it's pretty clear from the votes that have been counted that it's going to be uh, a Biden win of some significance. It takes, you know, maybe November 5th or November 6th. In that scenario, do you think these all of the fuel uh, is taken out of the Trump effort to steal the election? I'd say a lot of fuel is taken out, but not all of it. Mm-hmm. I, I take as a premise of my article, and I'm prepared to defend it, that there is no circumstance under which Donald Trump will concede defeat in the election. Uh, I agree with that. That uh, his only answer is going to be that if he's not ahead in the count, then the count is fraudulent. And then the question is just, what does he have he can do about it? What, how much can he do about it under under various circumstances? What are his constraints and what are his opportunities? Uh, and if he is leading on the election night count uh, in an important state, uh, but we happen to know that uh, there are still two million votes left to be counted right. in the state. Like most uh, of the votes, yes, right. Right, I mean, it, it, and, and we know because of a phenomenon called the blue shift that the overtime count is likely to trend in the direction of Biden. Uh, that's been true for 20 years now, the, the blue shift. Uh, then election commentators are going to say, well, Trump is ahead so far. There are 2 million votes left to be counted, uh, and projections suggest that Biden will do well in that group. Uh, Trump will, will call the count that night, he'll say, that's it. The only count that counts is folks that were enumerated, tabulated on election night. Uh, Everything else is a fraudulent attempt to take my victory away. I think that even if Biden has a significant lead, um, he will do what he can do uh, to collect all the inevitable stories. And there always are stories of screw ups around the country where, uh, you know, some votes got damaged in a plumbing leak or uh, something got lost, something got found. There are, there are discrepancies always in an election. Uh, this is an election administered in 10,500 jurisdictions uh, around the country, mostly counties. Uh, there's going to be little episodes that can be blown up on social media and that the president can point to 
and claim represent uh, large-scale fraud, just as he's already done with this trivial incident in Pennsylvania in which nine votes were accidentally placed in a trash can. Uh, uh, so he will do his best. And the question is whether, for example, the Republican Party will go along with him in his narrative of massive fraud. Uh, right. If he can throw up enough fog, uh, then uh, I wouldn't rule out uh, a controversy that lasts a while. I mean, concession is the way we we end elections in America. That's how it happens. The the losing candidate says, I I, I accept that the winner has legitimately uh uh, the, the win has legitimately gone to the other side. That's how every election has ended. And if you don't have that, uh, it's very hard to replace it. So <clears throat> the fog is the key. And that's sort of how he operates across the board is the fog. And, and the, you know, is Hunter Biden and China and Russia and the emails and the Rudy stuff and like, you know, is the perfect phone call and, you know, is Vinman good or bad? Like, that's sort of the fog is how he operates and how he kind of, you know, and he's not, this is just how that mentality, if I can, it, it, a narcissist will generally keep you off balance, keep you anxious, keep you guessing, keep you questioning yourself, telling you his version of reality, forcing you to believe it by bullying you. Like the wet, the lawsuits are to create fog. So you can't keep up. So you can't keep track of what all you see is just the multiple lawsuits and, oh, the ballots and the Republicans are suing here and you're you're kind of lean towards the Republican Party. So you're kind of glad that those people are suing over that. and You never really question it. And, and so it just seems, well, if they're suing, they must be suing for a reason. They're not suing for no reason whatsoever. There must be some purpose to it. The purpose is to create the confusion to allow you to have the ability to operate in whatever shady manner you want. Donald Trump is, oh, the oh this Trump University thing. They just they started with the Russia stuff. And so I can't trust anything that they're saying. But. Then you go and look at the tax returns. You look at the revenue that the Trump campaign is bringing in on a consistent basis from their properties using the, the, the Republican Party and the White House Travel Office and the Secret Service as guaranteed room nights. You don't pay attention to that because you just go, uh, that person who's bringing you that information is not trustworthy because they work for the New York Times or the Atlantic. I can't trust this because that person has Trump derangement syndrome. They just talk about how bad he is. I don't want to pay attention to this because it's just too much. It's too overwhelming. Uh, you know, and so that fog, that exhaustion, that constant churning is and that that exhaust he plays off of that to operate in ways that are shady. And then the only solution is for the Republican Party to turn and say, "Stop this. This is not how we behave." You know, and, and it's and then you go, well, that's just when George Bush and John McCain and Mitt Romney, they're just the deep state and they they're all sticking together. You know, James Carville writing for the Republican website, The Bulwark, it, it is just the deep state sticking together. Uh, David Axelrod doing a podcast with, you know, uh, Mike, uh, what's his face from the from the Romney campaign, that's just the deep state sticking together. And yeah, there is camaraderie amongst thieves. Like, that does exist. And I will tell you that some of my best friends in politics are Republicans and Democrats who served for political parties because I have an experience that they have and nobody else understands it. 
When you run a state political party, you feel a kinship to the other people who did that too because you know what it's like. You know, and then when you talk about it and you, you're in pictures with those Republican Democratic friends, ah, the elites are all just sticking together. Meanwhile, I'm living in an 800-square-foot apartment. <laughs> Such an elite. You know what I mean? So the elitist, yes. That constant fog is how he operates, but it's, mm-hmm. it's the in-group policing that will keep them in check. It's one of the reasons I love that Rimzo is voting for Trump and, and Ryan is voting for Biden and their contributors to the We Are Libertarians Facebook page in this network because <laughs> their perspectives are going to keep me from going too far one way or the other. You know, I have to debate Reinhold who's really smart, and Ryan, who's really smart, and Brian and Rimzo, who are really smart, and Harry. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I didn't um, say you were very smart, but I hope the, jo- I hope the joke came through. Um, but yeah, you know what came- I mean? Like Those differing perspectives is in, as a form of in-group policing to keep us all kind of tethered to reality because when we here in Indiana go, you guys don't realize what a problem these white, white supremacist militias are. They're fucking scary, and they're really bad. And then the person who's living in the East Coast City goes, you don't understand how bad Antifa is, though. And you have a tendency to talk past each other and go, like, it's not about a team, right? Like, my experience here in the Midwest is different, like, where we didn't have the kind of lockdowns L.A. has. You know, so when I talk to my friends over at Lions of Liberty who live in L.A., they're very concerned with mask mandates and government intervention and that. But when you talk to Indiana libertarians, they're very concerned with the people they're rubbing shoulders with at a lot of these events or online who are in mm-hmm. these like three percenter type groups and seeing the radicalization that's taking place. Right. It doesn't mean either is right or wrong. It's not a choice. It's just that that having those conversations keeps everybody kind of balanced. And when it's, the republic, yeah, I mean, Harry, go ahead. I'm just, just going to say, like, it, it, the, the difference of like w- your part, entire worldview, like where you're concentrating in that, and that's another reason why, like, libertarians just try to get um, power away from the, the the federal government because they're not seeing the small local issues that everyone else is having. You know, so yeah, if you're I get brought into California because I have to deal with people at work and I just have to tell them like, well, just go do that. Like, well, I can't, I can't go to the office. You mean you can't go to the office. I go to the office all the time. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. You're locked down. You know, you can't leave. Yeah. They they have a totally different experience there than we've had in Indiana. Mm -hmm. Like we had Mm -hmm. lockdowns for two weeks, but it wasn't the government here can't do anything because they haven't been building a power base with the rapidity of California or one of these East coast blue States. So when, right. when Brian Nichols goes, what do you mean Antifa is not real? Like, I have gunshots in my neighborhood and the Lowe's got ransacked, and it wasn't by white supremacists. It was by Antifa. Or, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. You know, it's just like right. we, we all try to force each other into different camps instead of going like, oh, thank you for your perspective. That really helps. I'm concerned with this thing over here because you and I can go to the office. Right. Like, you know, they're, they're – the government here can't do anything because it's a fairly free state comparatively. Comparatively. Yeah. But then yeah. you look at Whitmer yeah. and you just go, Oof. Yeah, because right now in Indianapolis, their police department is strapped dealing with a crime, a violent rate that they, they are not equipped for and have yeah. no – and uh, and it's it's the perfect storm. And it's the reason why Indy is having its – you know this violent crime. Um, and no one wants to address it, the cost of it, but it's really there. But so the, 
all the mandates from like the COVID stuff is also coming from the health department. Yeah. You know, and, and snitches. Yeah. <laughs> people snitching on other people. I think that's the, and that's what you see in indie is the, you know, like people getting snitched on to the health department. You, you, know, you will not, you change. will not face there. And every police off, like every police agency in the rural areas of Indiana, when Holcomb put out the mask mandate, put out statements saying we have better things to do. We will not enforce this. You know, and, you know, when you look at what's going on in L.A. or California, Mm -hmm. where like literally they just put out a curfew and you can't have more than four people over to your house and you can't Mm -hmm. sing while you're in the presence of each other. You just go, who what is happening over there? Because it's just so different. But my point, I don't want to get lost because we're we're going on a tangent. But my, my point is that when there isn't that kind of in-group policing or conversation because we just kind of stick with what we know, it, it allows for a greater slide towards craziness. And the problem that I have with a lot of – I get that Donald Trump is Donald Trump. Like mm-hmm. We get that, right? Yes. But what happened to Lindsey Graham and Rand Paul and some of these other people and you're just like – or Ben Sass, who I have a ton of respect for Ben Sass. And then he quietly says under his breath on a conference call that he, he kisses butts of white supremacists and he does all these bad things. But, dude, in the primary, you were kissing his ass to get through your primary. Like, again, no honor amongst thieves. And so, uh, you know, I read an article in The Atlantic last night. Where's George W. Bush? Why isn't he's the only Republican living pre- Republican president and he's not speaking out against him and he's just enjoying his summer at, at Kennebunkport while the nation burns and what how has he let democracy down and I'm just like thinking this magazine in the 2000s thought this man was the devil and now he's the only one that can save democracy it's so funny to me uh yep. you know but yep. he's going to save it <laughs> you know but there is a point when we get to the to the third part of this interview that I want to play where yeah, you're going to need some of these Republicans to grow a backbone and actually stand up and say, this isn't how America does things. Correct. So, what, what everyone wanted Rand to do. It, exactly. So let's continue with uh, this uh, conversation with Bart Gelman of The Atlantic on the Campaign HQ podcast with David Pluff. No, for sure. So I want to focus on, before we get to a scenario that is, this thing is a lot closer than the polls suggest. Uh, it may take weeks to decide the president in the actual vote count. That, I think, is the most damaging situation for country. But let's focus on one where, um, you know, Biden's not declared the winner election night. Um, but maybe he's won Florida or Florida's super close. There's still going to be some votes to count. Pennsylvania, Michigan, Wisconsin, Arizona, North Carolina. Uh, you know, all the expert analysis, including, you know, the Fox boiler room is saying Biden's going to win. But Trump goes out and says, I'm ahead. I've won. All the rest of the votes are fraudulent. In both your reporting for your piece, Bart, and I'm sure you've talked to a lot of people afterwards, what's your view of what the Republican Party does? So the McConnells of the world, other senators, governors, do they go along with Trump in that scenario uh, or do they counsel patients and say, we've got to wait for all the votes to be counted? That's such an important question. And I, and I really don't know. But here's something to understand about uh, the genius of Donald Trump. And I think he does have a genius. And that is that is 
for suborning people uh, to, to uh, induce them to cross lines they never imagined that they would cross. For sure. By sticking them into a sort of a gray area first and gradually dragging them over the line into something they they just can't believe that they're saying. And the, the problem is, if if you asked the mainstream Republicans whether they would uh, try to discredit uh, the results of an election uh, when the count was clear, they would certainly say no. They would never do such a thing. Uh, but they are already bought into a narrative of fraud. They are already going along with uh, the idea that uh, – that mail-in votes uh, have potential for fraud. You saw in 2018 when the overtime count uh, changed results in California and in Arizona and uh, in Florida uh, that you had mainstream Republicans like Paul Ryan uh, saying, well, these votes are coming out of nowhere. We have no idea how this is happening. Uh, As if there was something uh, suspicious about keeping on counting uh, when the vote count is unfinished. Uh, and I'm afraid uh, that they will be lured far enough across the line of a narrative uh, on voter fraud uh, that they'll keep going when he does. He'll make it hard to get off that train. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that. I think it's going to be maybe the most profound test these elected officials have ever had in their life. Uh, and I'm, I'm a little bit scared about what's going to happen there. So, so, you know, in this Atlantic article about the Bushes, they all said, you know, the reason Jeb and George are staying silent despite their very clear disrespect and dislike of Trump is George P. Bush, Jeb's son, wants to have a political future. If you're looking for courage from the political class, you are mistaken. <laughs> and if you're looking for them to save democracy from themselves, they're not going to do it. You know, they're, they're really politicians as it is a bedrock principle of we are libertarians. Politicians are spineless weasels and you can always expect them to do what the crowd wants. And the crowd usually wants what's wrong, you know, and they want to be lied to. They want to be. And so politicians like Mitch McConnell are probably going to go along with whatever scheme if it's close, you know, and you really don't. And so he's going to get into more technical stuff here in just a moment. But I wanted to just stop and make the point, like, don't expect the Republican Party to stand up and do the right thing. They're going to play into the fog because that's what we've seen them do for five years is Rudy Giuliani's telling the truth. Let's go to bat. It doesn't matter how shaky this information is or how weird the witness was and how many times the guy changed his story on like never mind the fact that like who just drops three laptops off at a at a repair shop and just doesn't go pick them up like is it out of the realm of possibility that like go ahead harry you said that's common that's common people do that to cars people people go to cars or they get the bill like you need to fix these but you got pictures of you with a crack pipe or a meth pipe you don't go pick that laptop up all right so uh, I've had people drop off laptops to me to be to fix, and and I told them how much it is to fix and what it is like that. And then they go, all right, well, I'll keep it. And there's tons of info of their stuff on it. I do the right thing and just erase it, but all right, they are fair enough. They leave. I've, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, I suppose you think it was the Russians, Reinhold? I don't. I don't want to get it too far in down that. That yeah, little yeah. Bit. we're way over time already. Well so over two hours, and I know we're not. We don't have the time. But my my whole thing on this is that Trump doesn't care about the Republican Party. Yeah. He cares about them. <laughs> right. 
<laughs> to throw the party under the bus to stay in power. And the Republican parties at some point are going to have to say, uh, we need to protect ourselves because yeah. this is, you know, this guy's not going to be around forever. So they may, in a self, um, pre- you know, preservational moment, decide that, okay, we need to stop this. I'm amazed. I'm amazed at how bad the Senate is going and if they really believe court packing and Puerto Rico and the filibuster, all these things that they're freaking out about if the Senate, if the liberals get control of the Senate. Like, why wouldn't you throw the thing that is keeping you from winning the Senate under the bus mm-hmm. and start fundraising? Because you're having to play in South Carolina and these seats that weren't supposed to be up. And here's the truth that you guys need to hear about the next Senate if it's Democratic. The thing about the 2018 class of Democrats and the thing about the 2020 class of Democrats in the House and Senate is they're not the squad. <laughs> you know, the guy winning in Arizona, the 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 uh, Christina Hale here in Indiana is a conservative Democrat who's, who's probably going to beat Victoria Sparks, a, a far right Republican, you know, and, you know, the, these the the. The guy winning, like Doug Jones. Think Doug Jones in in Alabama. These are not flamethrowing squad, I'm going to vote for the Green New Deal type Democrats. Neither is Joe Biden. Joe Biden was once called the Republicans' favorite Democratic senator because he was the guy that reliably worked to pass conservative legislation like these crime bills we all talk about. So while the mistake that the Democrats and liberals are going to make – is that they are going to pretend that Twitter is the real world like they always do, and they're going to reach too far, and then the Democratic conservative senators from Iowa, you know, Indiana had one named Joe Donnelly, and he was basically a a pro-life Republican. The progressives in the state hated him. Iowa, uh, Alabama, Colorado, Arizona, all these, you know, uh, North Carolina, if he wins— these people are not going to vote for all this big liberal Twitter plays well on Twitter stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they're going to have their, the, the cold reality for the liberals. If they win the Senate, win the white house is it's a generational, it's a fight for generational power. And so, you know, the Republicans, I'm just mystified why maybe that's why they're hedging their bets and, and going with Trump in case 2016, a 2016 miracle win comes about again. Um, why they didn't just throw him under the bus and why they always just continually make excuses for this guy because he's willing to take this entire party down. You've got an, you've got a guy in Arkansas who's running against Tom Cotton who did an amazing job in his Senate, in his Senate town hall, basically, who has a shot. You've got Don Rainwater running for governor in Indiana on the Libertarian ticket, and he's got a shot. Mm-hmm. You guys are really going to be a second third party in the republican party if you don't keep it up because of demographics so all right let's go ahead any thoughts before we move on okay so uh there is a procedural i gave you half a second harry (laughs) no no i'm just no i know you gave me that it's just more just like I want to go on to it, but we'll just derail it. All so right. just keep going. We, keep going. Go, we, go. I have a radio. We I have a. Till, we can go till 8 p.m. if you want to go. Let's do this. All right. Let's get on a 10 hour podcast and let's just, let's no, just no. get this done. This is no, a, this no. is a, 
No, I have Gunther banging this door down because she knows after I'm done with this, we go to park. This is just a 40-minute clip that I'm going to play. So (laughs) this is a longer clip, and then we'll be done. Uh, So anyways, um, we're we're laying out a case, boys, all right? We're laying out evidence so people understand what's going on here. This is fascinating information, but I save this for the end because the people listening this far really do care about this. Um, but this is about what would happen. So talked a little bit about the day of, day after election, the, the, the beginning of it, why there's all this stuff going on, creating the fog, uh, creating the, saying it's the rigged vote, it's all going to be all this. So you can then, if it is close, get some shenanigans going. This section of the podcast is about what happens with the electors and how Trump would use what legal mechanisms he would use to try and become president in that instance. So, Bart, let's say that uh, and, you know, this is a scenario I think you center on in your piece that um, the votes are counted and Joe Biden has surpassed 270 electoral votes. Um, you know, one of the things you capture in the piece is, you know, this is not just idle musings. The Trump campaign is actively considering, and maybe they're already doing it, um, you know, organizing rival slates of electors. So essentially you'd have, um, particularly where you have Republicans in control of state legislatures uh, in some of these battlegrounds, you would all have coming up two rival states, uh, slates of electors that ultimately make their way to Congress. Can you talk a little bit about that and how that would happen and what that would mean? Right. Uh, even insiders sometimes don't realize that electors are actually human beings. Uh, <laughs> right. You know, there's 538 of them and uh, they each get one vote. And the slates of electors are, are pre-committed um, either to Biden or to Trump. And so the, the question is whether a state legislature uh, in a state like Pennsylvania, uh, which is a battleground state where the legislature is controlled by Republicans, um, would try to maneuver around the appointment of electors uh, in the usual way, uh, which is by the popular vote in that state, uh, and instead seek to name electors, uh, name the Trump electors, regardless of the voting outcome. Now, the Constitution says that each state legislature may choose electors in the manner of its own choosing. Uh, it's only by tradition uh, and uh, by state legislation that electors are chosen by popular vote. But the argument would be uh, the popular vote is hopeless, hopelessly poisoned by fraud. Um, there are, uh, there are uh, the, the count has been rigged. Uh, we can't trust the certified results. And we're going to have to decide for ourselves, we Republicans, who we think the people intended uh, to, uh, to vote for. And we're going to certify the Trump electors as representing Pennsylvania's uh, uh, results, regardless uh, what the popular vote count uh, says or doesn't say. And this is uh, something that uh, Republicans actually uh, went almost all the way to doing in Florida in the year 2000. Uh, the day that Gore came out to concede the election, which was the day after the Supreme Court ruled in uh, Bush against Gore, uh, the both chambers of the Republican Florida legislature had passed out of committee a resolution that would have appointed Republican electors regardless of the standing of the ongoing litigation about the about the recount. Uh, and they were prepared to vote for it on December 13th uh, and would have passed it. Uh, 
but Gore came out and uh, obviated the need for that. So it's it's a it's a move that is uh, known to them, uh, and that I know the Trump campaign is talking about. I can't say what it's planning. So you mentioned Pennsylvania. Uh, the state legislature there is controlled by Republicans, but there's a Democratic governor. What role will governors have in this process, if any? Well, it's an important role. Uh, you know, here, I'm just uh, working through the logic uh, of the position they would take and the power that they have. So suppose that Pennsylvania's legislature says, the count is bollocks, we're appointing Trump electors. Uh, the governor would then uh, say, uh, I'm certifying the results of the count. And in this scenario, we've got Biden ahead. Uh, and so I am certifying the Biden electors. Both of them send uh, those uh, those votes. They're, they're called certificates of ascertainment to the National Archives and to the president of the Senate, Mike Pence. Uh, and now uh, they have to do that by December 8th, which is the uh, so-called safe harbor deadline. Uh, for a state to choose its electors. But because there is a controversy, uh, because the electors are not uh, consensus electors, because they're, they're now uh, 40 people claiming the right to cast the 20 votes for Pennsylvania, uh, Congress has to decide uh, what to do with them. Does it count the votes? Uh, does it, which and which votes does it count? And Mike Pence is presiding over the joint session of Congress that has to make that, that decision. And that would be the currently the current Congress, as opposed to changes uh, as a result of this election, correct? No, actually, it would be the new Congress. Uh, the new so that Congress, would be the new Congress. Okay. The new Congress is seated on January third. Uh, the oh, date- sorry, I was back in December. So right, so this is right after the January third installation of the new Congress. Right on okay. January sixth is when Congress takes up the votes that the Electoral College cast. Uh, so there's a three week period. Uh, that passes after the Electoral College. And the Electoral College in this scenario has had a meltdown. It, you, right. you have had multiple delegations showing up and purporting to cast the votes of Pennsylvania in this scenario. And, uh, and Congress has to try to make some sense of it. Okay, so yeah, in that three-year period, we go from the state capitals to the United States capital. So, um, and you captured this in your piece, but it's worth re- uh, reminding people uh, that if the Democrats do take back the Senate and hold the House, um, whatever Trump does out in the states uh, is going to reach a brick wall in Washington in early January, correct? Yes, with an asterisk, because there's always an <laughs> asterisk in law, and there's always an asterisk with right. Trump. So. I mentioned earlier that the uh, 12th Amendment of the Constitution does not tell you how the count is to proceed. It's, it's uh, in passive voice. So what happens if you've been given two conflicting certificates uh, to count? Uh, Congress tried to answer that question after a horrible meltdown in 1876. Uh, some years later, Congress passed the Electoral Count Act, which uh, attempted to instruct Congress about how to decide which electoral votes will count. The problem is it's one of the worst written, most opaque pieces of legislation uh, that exists in the U.S. Code. Uh, it is almost impossible to understand the instructions. And they uh, there's sort of a logic bomb in there in which it could mean opposite things uh, under certain scenarios. And so if you have Democrats in control of the Senate and in control of the House, then both chambers would vote uh, to accept the electors, uh, presumably that representing Biden from Pennsylvania. But because the 12th Amendment says that uh, Mike Pence presides over uh, this count, uh, it would be the position of the Trump campaign that tr- 
uh, Pence had the unilateral authority to rule on his own re-election and Trump's, uh, and that Pence's uh, vote was the only one that counted in deciding which electors to recognize. They would be saying, in, 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 in effect, that the Electoral Count Act is unconstitutional if it conflicts with that reading. And so there would still be, now, if the Senate Republicans uh, and the House Republicans would go along with this, uh, then there would still be a controversy, and it uh, it might fall to uh, the Supreme Court. It also might fall to the power of the president uh, to declare insurrection and uh, and 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 enforce Pence's judgment that he'd been reelected. Woo! <laughs> so I bet people do, because we just take for granted that all this stuff. I have been a presidential elector. I've selected by my party to serve as a Libertarian Party. Elector should Gary Johnson win in twelve or sixteen? Uh, or no, 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 yeah, twenty twelve. I think it was just twenty twelve. But regular people are electors, and so you hear like, but you just kind of take for granted that there is just you vote on election day that we all select the president and then you move on, right? None of us are old enough, except for Reinhold, to remember the two thousand election. Uh, I know this sounds weird, but Chuck Todd has a good podcast out right now called Florida, 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 and his Chuck Toddcast, which is the most beta name for a podcast ever. But uh, it actually is a really good, like, five-part doc- like audio documentary on the 2000 recount, so I would re- recommend checking that out. But a lot of us take for granted all the legal loopholes that kind of go into what we just heard. Now, to extend this, all of this is game theory. All this is just playing it out, right? Nobody knows what's going to happen on Election Day. It could be a Trump blowout. It could be a Biden blowout. It could be a 2016 with Biden losing uh, the Electoral College with winning the popular vote. could be Trump losing in a squeaker going through with all this stuff. Not saying any of this is the... The reality and that this is what's going to happen. I want to be very clear about that. I don't want anybody to be scared about all this stuff because this is all just game theory, right? We're working out what may happen, trying to give you some information so you understand what's ha- what happens. So Trump declares insurrection. So let me pick it up there uh, as I wrote in an article about how we could slip into civil war. Through this, you now have two decided factions that have said one of the other – is the rightful president and the heir apparent to take over the Constitution. The, the majority of the government, the state, local, federal governments go with Joe Biden, right? The majority stick with him. But there's a percentage of the country that goes with Donald Trump and recognizes him as the rightful president. And it's all the militias, all the people with the guns, the very well-armed it's 10 to 20 percent of local police departments, state police, the military. They all side together. Tensions get hot. You get a Rittenhouse event that the Kyle Rittenhouse event is a very localized event that takes place in one small geographic area. What happens when that tension and that escalation expands to the entire country through a process like this and people feel that they are forced into two sides and then you have two percent of the country that is then engaged in armed conflict so when people talk about civil war that is what they're talking about because now all of a sudden you've got 
skirmishes taking place in cities on behalf of the back, the blue, and the other side is the BLM, but Team Biden versus Team Trump, and your local police department, because of the defections and the firepower of local citizens that are willing to engage in violent acts, they're equally armed. <laughs> so, you know, that is... when I, that is the most likely scenario in terms of how you'd slip into a civil war. Now, do I think that's going to happen? I don't. I think that I don't buy the civil war talk because I think more than anything, Americans love comfort and the idea of hardship brought on by a civil war is just not going to happen. You'd have some skirmishes here and there, like a written house event, but it doesn't go full. Like I, I don't buy it, but I want to deposit that because that's a very natural, but that constitutional crisis of two presidents without the violence is possible. That could happen. So, um, again, it's it's just kind of gaming all this out, and it has to be on the table and understood because the Republican Party and the Trump campaign are trying to force this. So, um, so but in the fog, everybody's going to go. Well, they'll you know the the problem is that everybody like the Kyle Rittenhouse events. There's 10 layers to that. There's 200 layers to what we just laid out in the last two and a half hours. But when it's going on and it's happening, you're, and you're in the middle of it, in the fog of it, everybody's arguing and you're, you're, you know, you're the hardcore libertarian who listens to only the right-wing media and Ben Shapiro and, and uh, the New York Post and the Washington Examiner, and that's where they get their news. And then your liberal friend who only reads Vox and the Washington Post, and everybody's got two sets of information and facts, and they're both kind of right, because, but it's never merged together. And so if we get to this point, if we have that sort of thing, I want you to understand what could happen, how it would work. And so that way, if we get to that point, and it is some, somewhat of a contested election, you are better prepared to understand what's going on. And I appreciate everybody uh, kind of being patient with some of that because I think it's just hugely, hugely important to understand the legal mechanisms that are taking place. Uh, your thoughts, Reinhold or Harry? Bigly, if bigly thoughts, if you would. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's that uh, I, I get with you the whole comfort thing. Um, I don't really buy too much also into the Civil War talk. It's fun to joke about. I um, mean, even make memes on, but no, Americans are way too comfortable in their areas. Will there may be some riots and some scrimmages in some areas? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That's probably going to happen. There was but... a great podcast by Andrew Heaton. Political Orphanage is a great podcast. Libertarian centrist Andrew Heaton did a podcast, the last one, about mm -hmm. there will be a revolution after this election day based on one of these two candidates winning or losing. And he said it's not going to be that hot civil war because what, what I just laid out when you have that big violence in the streets is you have a lot of young people. You have a lot of people who have no economic advantage. You have a lot of oppressed people um, at levels that Americans don't. There are oppressed people. There are people with economic disadvantages in America. There are systemic problems, as we've talked about, at the level of Egypt, not quite. And right. so – what is more likely to happen is what you see in Iran, which is like, like with the Green Revolution, is a color revolution, which we somewhat had this summer, where hundreds of thousands of people take to the streets to protest one thing or another. 
and injustices, and it puts pressure on the political system to change. But our system is still so well-preserved that you're not going to have a violent overthrow of anything. It's only a color revolution. So for all you collapsitarians, I have bad news for you. So, Harry, continue your thought. But I thought that that was an interesting conversation that people ought to go mm-hmm. listen to if they found your point particularly fascinating. Right, yeah. The, yeah, the idea of that that's happening anytime soon. No, that's – no. Um, can it happen? Maybe, yeah. Yeah, we can also be wrong, but I hope hopefully we're not. This is I hope people, you know, understand that, you know, uh, uh, is this the most important election of our lifetime? It's no, it's just just people changing hands. It's it's it's, it's the peaceful power transition that needs to happen, that needs to continue to happen for, you know, to give any semblance of legitimacy to the government. Um which little that it does have left. Um the, but I think I always want to touch back on one thing that Chris has said is the uh, Libertarian Party has been the canary in the coal mine, and I think um, the uh, and it's also helped spark something to the left that understanding that the newer Democrats and the newer Republicans are realizing like these old parties of old do not satisfy them; they do not give them what they need, and hopefully tear these things down and break things things apart. I think the Democratic Party did a disservice when they were trying to go after the. Uh, illegitimacy of Trump's election of trying like electoral college is wrong is wrong you know we need to do this and I was like okay cool let's talk about this and how we can get also get other parties out of these two corporations to start to, uh, you know to be able to get on the ballots and have different voters suppress uh, and stop the voter suppression it's this perfect storm that they have created that is going to this newer crop of people are starting to understand that they don't have to be a Democrat or Republican. It could be something else, you know, and it, that's also okay, you know. And they started it by trying to delegitimize the other side. Yeah, Reinhold. Yeah, I mean, uh, we, we were talking about how Biden's not going to be the, you know, the left, the uh, progressives. I mean, that's that's held true in the last one too. And everybody thought Obama was going to be this hardcore socialist, come in there and do all this stuff, and he actually was better on things like gun control than even than Trump is, you know, I mean, and he was bombing people and doing all the things that most of the most, most associated with the right. Right. So that's the third way strategy. I mean, that Clinton really identified is like, you know, his first two years, Dick Morris was poll testing everything and, and Clinton would do all these crazy leftist things. And he turned a lot of people off and then he ditched him and started doing things like welfare reform and moving towards the right. And I heard Mitch Daniels say that a Democratic president is the only one that can take on the debt, that a Republican president can't do it. And it's because you need to have that in-group person like a Biden take on the debt to work with the Republicans to cut a deal because one team can't do it on their own. So if if a leftist president moves right and works on right issues, it's more effective than these doing left stuff like Obamacare just – it's like it's delegitimized because it's only one side. The whole system is about balance. Mm-hmm. And Roe versus Wade is controversial because they pushed it too far too soon, unlike gay marriage, which they chipped away at. And then finally, it's it's a settled issue. It's not controversial anymore except in the fringe. Right. And and when you're talking about the debt, the, I mean, if you look back, it's it's been the Democratic presidents who have tried to get some sort of sense of the, the, the debt under control in the past, like Clinton. And, and then you look at what Trump did, you know. 
Bush and Trump. Now, Bush and Trump, Bush had extenuating circumstances, but then he also put us into a war we didn't need to be into and made it last forever so he could get a bunch of money for the military industrial complex and all that Mm -hmm. stuff and Raytheon and whatnot. But that's part of it is that you need need to have – you can't just be scared that the person coming in is going to start running way to the left because – they won't stay in power very long. To they, do that. These are I mean, politicians. They want the whole. The, most of the people in Congress are going to be representing the middle, because those people who are going to Congress are going to be consensus consensus winners. They're going to be representing more of the middle of their communities. So you mm-hmm. trying to trying to say that one side or the other in our polit- political system is ever going to just come in and take over? I just don't see that ever happening. It's never really happened before. Right. I mean, you look at Nixon. Nixon was one of the worst presidents before we, we the current one. Um, but he was governing like a Democrat. Oh, my God. Yeah. E- EPA. And he created yeah. uh, national. They had we had national speed limit laws because of that. We had the HMO Act um, that broke basically broke health care was Nixon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He was trying to legislate what temperature you could set your air conditioner to. Yeah. Was uh was drinking age. Was that him, too? I think. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so e- exactly, and that's that's the thing is like if you want to, so in a system built on balance, you have to get the middle. So Trump's problem is, is for instance, let's illustrate it by insulting everybody who isn't a Republican white male boomer, and turning off black women, Hispanic men, uh, you know, everybody who isn't in his base. He's lost all those people in the in the middle. You know, and he thinks, oh, I've got 39% of the population I can win. No. And so politicians, because, you know, the founders talked a lot about controlling a person's ambition with these factions, right? So you, if you want to get reelected, the path to power is through compromise and balance and moving towards the other side to get the independence and looking independent. You know, so that's how the system works. And so... You know, now is that good in terms of liberty? No, not usually. <laughs> I mean, look at where we're at in terms of the federal government. Um, so, but it's something that libertarians have to think about because this is the system that you're in and what you have to manage. So, uh, well, libertarians it, think that they're going to have that big revolution and just take over everything, and it's not how that works at all. Yeah, it's just not going to be the way our system allows that change not look at what the, social, what the socialists did when they kind of started taking over in the progressive movement in the liberty in the democratic party mm-hmm. that was decades that they worked and chipped and chipped and chipped and got a little bit more and got yep. a little bit more under the platform right mm-hmm. and libertarians think that they sh- they're going to win and just overnight yep. shut the government down i mean it's not, it's not eugene because- De- go and study eugene debs and the socialist party from 110 years ago that is our model you, you from the outside put pressure on the other side, moving your, your cohort to your side, pressuring the other party to uh, – on the issues that they agree with, push them. You know, and and you, you read the 1912 Socialist Party platform, and it's Barack Obama. You know, it took them 100 years to get there. We as libertarians have to set the agenda for 2100. And start working for it and stop thinking so much about 2020 
and this election and being nearsighted because the Republicans are gone. Like they're that all they care about is the next election and winning and they don't care about the the policy. So whatever libertarian streaks you think existed in the Republican Party, they're everything about this show says they're they know they're generationally not going to exist and they're fighting for whatever scraps they can. They're desperate. And that doesn't desperation and leadership don't mix. <laughs> right. Yeah. Imagine what happens if the Democrat, the Republican Party starts to realize that they've they're getting completely swamped under by what's going on with Trump yeah. and they're not going to have power for the foreseeable future. And then all the people in the Republican Party who are supposedly liberty minded, mm-hmm. if they were just say we're leaving and going to the Libertarian Party. Mm-hmm. Now, that may be a few years of Democrats being kind of in charge, mm-hmm. but then you've got two second parties that are fighting it out over what's going to end up being that counter to the Democrats. Is it going to be the Republicans rebuilding themselves or is it going to be the libertarians who finally rise up and become that second party? It's I've got people messaging me that I was in the tea party with 10 years ago going, Hey, I'm really sorry for how I treated you 10 years ago. I was a hardcore Republican and now I see the benefits of having a third party to vote for as a protest. But the truth is here in Indiana, we are a second party. And it just took one poll for a match to light for Don Rainwater to get all of those libertarian-leaning Republicans to switch sides. It yep. took Donald Trump for a lot of those libertarian-leaning Democrats to switch sides. Like, it just takes the absolute decrepitude of one of the two parties and the conditions for the, the conditions to be right for these people to swarm into your party. The problem is trying to get all these coalitions to exist. How do you get the Yang gang and the Tulsi heads? And I don't know what their nickname is, but going with it to coexist with the Ron Paulites and the Mises crowd, right? Like Justin Amash has kind of figured out a way and as a template for coexistence within the movement to build that third way amongst Democrats and Republicans, you know, and and hey, if you're not on board with it, you're going to get left behind. Like when you look at Amash and you look at how he handles Iona, uh, uh, Ariana Presley and AOC and then also Thomas Massey and Matt Gates, Justin Amash is the template. You know, and and the flame throwing, bomb throwing bullshit is not. And if you are, and you're part of the problem at that point, and so be part of the solution or be part of the problem because you're going to get left behind. That there is no value in trying to replicate the the messaging and strategies and temperament and attitude of the least popular president in American history. Like it just doesn't. How, how it's not do going to work for you. Yeah, look at what happened to all the. Liberty Republicans, Liberty Conservatives, in in elected in Congress, the minute that Amash decided that he was done with the Republican Party and he he couldn't do it anymore, they turned on him so hard. People who were, I mean, Amash had like the highest rating, and then uh, for for freedom on the Freedom Index, and all these people who are just, you know, nowhere near his level were calling him uh, a liberal Democrat and all kinds of. I mean, it was. It was insane what they did, and they do it because they're trying to protect the party because they know that if this dem- if the if those dominoes start to fall, and let's say Massey says I'm done and he goes, and then Rand says I'm done and I go, you know, what happens to their party at that point? They don't have any fake 
representation of liberty in their party anymore. It's right. not. It's never been real in the Republican Party because the Republican Party always looks at those people as being um, crazies. Like right? they're just the crazies, but they'll take advantage of those people and their fundraising. And th- look at look what Trump is doing already. L- Trump is trying to say, hey, "Look, libertarians, Rand Paul is telling you, I'm going to do this for you." He doesn't care about libertarians or anything the Libertarian Party stands for. He wants those votes. He's going to use Rand Paul to try to get libertarians to vote for him. And that's the only value that liberty people in the conservative movement have. So he he can then drag you to a place of utter shame, like like Bart Gelman said. All right. Well, we got to wrap up. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you. Uh, uh, You know, I'd say share it, but your friends will go three hours. Um, but there's a, that's why we clip these out for YouTube. So if there's one segment that you're like, oh, I want to share just that part, it's up there. You can also uh, get the uh, go to go to minute marker X. We put the markers in there for you too, so uh, you can help friends skip right to it. And then our show notes are also if you want to see the uh, show notes that we use and and all the articles we source everything, so you can go and check. Go check it out at WeAreLibertarians.com. So with that, thank you guys. Thank you Harry. Thank you Reinhold. And we will see you again next week.